Welcome to 2020, you futuristic dorks. Blade Runner is now a film about the past. It's history. Same with Back to the Future. Not Star Wars yet. But hello, you futuristic bollocks. And welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. Earlier on I was actually listening to a podcast. Not my own podcast, someone else's one. And I don't know, just an, an, an advert came up. And the advert in it, it was for male genital grooming products, right? And firstly, firstly, all right, here, here's the weird thing. Number one, what I'm kind of trying to get at is that we, we seem to have lost a sense of irony in culture, right? So number one, the podcast that I was listening to was like a history of the mafia podcast that was kind of recorded in, in a cheesy gangster 1920s style, right? So I'm listening away about Al Capone going, wow, that sounds class. This sounds very moody and 1920s-ish. And then all of a sudden they start, you know, the advert comes into the middle of the podcast and it was an advert for male genital grooming products. But the person reading it didn't really drop character. They kind of stayed within the mood talking about these male genital grooming products as if they were talking about Al Capone. And I didn't really know, I didn't notice that uh, it was an advert. So I'm listening to the life of Al Capone with the moody jazz music in the background and the fucking, you know, the, the feeling of it being a 1920s gangster film. And then this man is talking about male genital grooming products. But again, what got me was... He... He he couldn't call them male genital grooming products because... Me, like... I guess men don't like to groom their bollocks. I've no problem with it. I don't want big hairy bollocks. I'll wash and shave my bollocks, not a bother. But I'm guessing for most lads, it seems kind of effeminate. So they had to call the razor for shaving the balls was not was known as the lawnmower, and the deodorant for your balls was called the crap duster. And it made me realise that because of incredibly fragile senses of masculinity and what masculinity is, there's lads who won't tend to their testicles unless an advertiser describes them as a field, and. They went on to, they kept it referring to the razor and the deodorant as as tools as well. That these these were very manly tools. And and what you have as well is not only a fragile masculinity, but a terrible fear of of being gay. So you have to over-manlyize grooming products so you don't appear either effeminate or gay. And the whole irony of it was is that the whole ad was being delivered to me seamlessly in a fucking podcast about Al Capone with that gangster jazzy music and you know you, you're listening to the podcast and it feels like it's in black and white do you know but warehouses bursting open and fellas with Tommy guns it brings back all this, all this feeling but then this advert is there trying not to be effeminate or gay but ending up being incredibly camp and homoerotic it's just me down a 
dark black and white 1930s alleyway with a fella in a long trench coat and the light coming down and his hat blackening out his face and he's talking from underneath his hat and his long trench coat smoking a cigarette down an alleyway asking me if if I want to fucking lawnmower my testicles and, and then afterwards if he can spray the crop duster on him and it was so camp and sincere and homoerotic and nobody spotted it. The the man with the fucking Mafia podcast delivered it without irony. And, and I'm, I won't even say the man with the Mafia podcast because that's not fair. It was one of these podcasts where it's made by money. It's it's like a full production team and they spent a few quid on it and it's made by a company. So it's not like my podcast where it's just me in a fucking studio on my own without backing. No. It, it was a lot of people had to get together and agree upon the appropriateness of an advert about crop dust or bollock deodorants and doing it in, in, in the tone of, of film noir and, and nobody nobody popped up and said this is ridiculous this is really really absurd and yeah just it gave me a real I was really struck with fuck irony is gone isn't it sincerity there's so much sincerity now in our culture as opposed to irony that no one can spot when something is utterly fucking absurd and dichotomous and I want to revisit that on a a later podcast but it's a hot take that I'm brewing about I'm not going to say it because someone else will, someone else will develop the idea but it's around irony um so this week I have for ye um I'm going to be chatting to someone I'm chatting to someone who is an expert in an expert in psychology, let's. And I recorded this in the Cork Opera House a couple of months back. I'm going to be back in the Cork Opera House in 2020 doing another gig and in Belfast and in doing a UK tour and an Australian tour and I'm in Chiang Mai in Thailand and I'm in Galway. See how I did that? Look those up. Blind by 2020 in one of those areas if you live there I have to plug the gigs lads I apologise but yes this is a conversation I had with a psychologist by the name of Dr Sharon Lambert who specialises in addiction uh, trauma psychology and again like I didn't even feel like she's an expert in her field and I didn't even it didn't even feel like I was chatting with an with an academic because of her ability and capacity to take really really complex ideas in psychology and for it to just sound like you're having a chat in a pub and I know I remember the the live podcast I put out with David Adardy a couple of weeks back I was saying you know how much I laughed throughout it this is one of those. Um, it's just a really fun, enjoyable chat about important things, important things in psychology and homelessness and addiction, all of this. But we speak about it from a place of of uh, humor and humor and irony, lads. And my thing. It's okay to speak about important topics using humor because. 
you can still deeply care about him and be serious about him while still using humour. This idea of not using humour when speaking about important topics, that's not being serious about it, that's just being solemn. And the state of solemnity is utterly useless and pointless. You know? So before I go into this, I'll give you a really quick ocarina pause so I don't have to interrupt the conversation. Also, when I'm recording this right now, it's a half. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions identifying my emotions I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online if online therapy is something you might be interested in Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire, and you get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime, for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindbuy today to get 10% off your first month. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash blind boy. On our way to New Year's, when the clock strikes 12, whatever you call it, the New Year 2020. So I want to, I want to open up a can. All right. Here's the ocarina pause. Um, You're going to be played an advert probably that Acast put in. Hopefully for crop dust in your bollocks. That was the ocarina pause. So before we go into the chat, this podcast is supported by you, the listener. Alright? Via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash the blind buy podcast. If you want a new year's resolution, how about becoming a blind buy Patreon? If you enjoy listening to the podcast all the time, because that's how I earn a living. That's what provides me with the income that makes me put this podcast out. And I thank you all for it. But please, uh, if you listen to this podcast regularly, become a patron. Give me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's all you got to do. And if you can't afford that, you can listen for free. Because it's a model that is based upon suggestion and kindness and generosity. 
and look it's paying my bills lads what more do I need um, alright so here is the conversation I had with Dr Sharon Lambert I hope you enjoy it I thoroughly did how are you finding Cork? I love Cork and I, I think Cork is brilliant and I can say that because I'm not from Cork originally you're from Clare I'm from County Clare um, I have a Cork accent I've been here for 20 something years Cork is the only accent that you'll infectiously pick up like I, I when I was in, in art college like I was hanging around with two Cork lads and within two weeks it sounded like I was singing everything you know <laughs> but no other accent like you'll never pick up a Dublin accent because it's horrible <laughs> you just you just won't like I know people living in Dublin for years you will not pick that accent up but Cork maybe a little bit of Kerry Limerick isn't very contagious no it's too monotonous it's just a continual monotone whereas up here you beautiful or down here I suppose you're down aren't you you singing people, you lilty people. <laughs> and it is the only accent in, in Ireland whereby they describe it as a lilt. You'd think it'd be a tenora, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, usually what I do when I have a guest, Sharon, right, is I ask the internet for the questions because that's the best way to democratise it. And the questions were fucking class. They were very, very... I don't understand the half of them, so I'm hoping... <laughs> First off, like, what do you do? Like, you're a lecturer in applied psychology, so I know what applied maths is. That's when you get maths, but you make the maths work in the real world. Is that what applied psychology is? That's exactly what applied psychology is. Could you, could you put the mic a little bit closer? Sorry. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's about taking psychological theories and concepts and applying them to real-world problems. So a lot of the work that we do in applied psychology in UCC is based in communities. So we do a lot of research with um, organisations, um, work with people who are experiencing homelessness, people who use drugs, uh, mental health. Um, so it's about... There was a, a very famous psychologist in the 60s, I think I could get this wrong now, my boss who's always talking about him would be really cross. Um, George Miller, and he, was, he said it's really important to give psychology away, and that's one of the things that we do in applied... So, actually, I don't know if any of the other departments in, in Ireland are called applied psychology, or if they're just yeah. schools of psychology. We're applied psychology, because one of the things we want to do is give psychology away. So a lot of the work that we do is with groups of people who often need psychology, but find it very hard to access it. And you work with a lot of... What, like what it said on your biography is marginalised people. So what is the definition of someone who'd be marginalised? What does that mean? So for me, what I talk about is people who find it very hard to access services that you and I can access. Well, I don't know what it's like when you rock up to A&E like that, but um, <laughs> for you're probably marginalised, actually. Are you marginalised? I suppose if, I mean... If I should have brought my dictaphone and we could, this could have been actually a research. I could have gotten a paper out of this. If I walk up to a &E with, with, with the bag on, they're going to like, oh shit, it's blind by. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah but true. my fucking, my leg is sore. And then, <laughs> can I have a selfie? No, can you cure my leg? So in, in that sense, yeah, I suppose I could go around calling myself marginalised. Now, th thanks for that now. I'll be... I'll be People you know, will love that. I'm yeah. blind by, I'm marginalised because I'm well known. All right, so <laughs> shut the fuck up and stop oppressing me. <laughs> yeah, so, be, so there are so there's groups of people in our community who need our services and who find them very difficult to use them because they're stigmatised. 
Um, so, 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 because those people are stigma. So, and is that stigma? Does that include, like, someone with no money as well? Yes, poverty. Yeah. is marginalisation. Even your accent. Do you know uh, Senator Lynn Rowan? Lynn Rowan, yeah. yeah. She's super cool. Yeah. She tweeted something a few weeks ago about a book that she was writing, and she spelt a word wrong in her tweet. I saw Did that, you see yeah. that? And this class A gobshite tweeted back and said, um, corrected her spelling, yeah. so then she told him to fuck off. Um, I saw that. Yeah. What was but the response you... she got? The, res the response. Oh, did you not see? He got up in his fucking high horse, he, didn't he? He certainly did. I did not expect this type of language. Yes. And you see, that's, that's, yeah, and he actually tweeted, I won't name the place where... Didn't he, yeah, he, yeah, added, he did. she was in an, an, an educational institution she, and he tried to rat her out. He did. So he said, I really hope that the students that you teach in X institution uh, aren't exposed to this kind of language, or I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, l let's hope the grown adults don't hear the word fuck. Um... And her response was excellent, which was, you know, when I teach young people who are marginalised, I tell them that their accents don't matter and their language don't matter. So, there are, so if you've got loads of money and you've nice education, it's very easy to access services. Um, I went, I, I've used it, like, I, yeah. <laughs> one of my children was sick and she had to go to Crumlin. And I made sure when I emailed that I put on my signature, Dr. Sharon Lambert. <laughs> Because I knew that that would open a door for me. Okay, and so you essentially so used the, the, the privilege of having doctor yeah. knowing we're going to essentially put her ahead of the queue almost. Yeah, because there are people who have no voices in our communities. And that's yeah. our responsibility then as academics who are, we're incredibly privileged, incredibly privileged to have had an access to an education and to be working in UCC, which is a beautiful place to work in. It's a beautiful yeah. building. Um, we have a responsibility to share that. So that's that, that concept that George Miller said about giving psychology away so that you can empower people for their voices to be heard so that they can access services and get the things that they need. So essentially, what, what I call that is, because like I speak a little bit about psychology on my podcast. You do. Now, I, I studied psychology like a, t a tiny bit for two or three years, like I'm not qualified or nothing, but I'd know more than if I didn't go to college. And what I call it is... <laughs> you have the job, sir. <laughs> um, I, know, I know a little bit, you know, but for me, that little bit that I learned, using it for myself and to understand like, I'm attracted to psychology because it allows me to... When I was at the throes of my anxiety, right, the most frightening part of it was not having a language at all to understand why I felt this way, how it w w I felt this way. Even, even, you know, anyone who's ever gotten an anxiety attack, even someone saying to you, oh, that, that's called a panic attack. That's, immediately finding that out, that's 50% of the fear gone. Yeah. because it's such a, a terrifying thing to happen and you don't have a name for it. I call it um, democratising psychology. I like that. Can I steal that? Work away. We yeah. could have... I, I have this... I have it. We will set up a new module. We'll propose a new module called democratic psychology and put it to academic board. What do you think? Yeah, fuck it. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> why not? Um, what's, your own, what's your own journey? How did you end up... Because you didn't start off as uh, an applied psychologist. Um, so, 
When I was small, I, I wanted to be a guard. I really wanted to be a guard. And I was really short. That's a, re- that's a real Claire thing. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're either a hurler or a guard, like yeah. Claire. But um, I wanted to be a guard, and I, I, I'm five foot three-ish. And, uh, was this when guards had to be a certain height? They had to be. I think it was five. It was ridiculous. Like, it it's because there was no guns. I always thought that was gas. It's like, you it was, can't have guns, so you have to be six foot. It was five seven. It was five seven for a woman and five nine for a man or something yeah. like that. And it was something ridiculous. Like, we're all fairly short. And I, my grandfather, uh, lovely man, he was born in 1906. Wow. And... Uh, uh, he used to tell me to go home and at night time to hold on to the top of the bed and try and make my toes. So every night I used to stretch in the bed. But what are you doing? Training to be a guard? Yeah. And he That's said, why all the guards look like bats. And my, <laughs> and my poor mother, she'd be looking at me, she'd go, I don't think it's going to happen, love, you're five foot three. So I kept trying anyway. So then anyway, it wasn't working. So I went to England uh, in the 90s to because join the, uh, the, the British, to join the British police. police are a bit shorter. There, there was are no... you fucking serious? Yeah, I'm serious. <laughs> Why are you going to England? Because the police are shorter and they let me in. Because I was going to join the police in England. <laughs> what is, what's a, I think that's a perfect That's reason. fucking nuts, will it's you not. stop? So it's the man with a bag. I suppose I have a bag in my head, yeah. I'm not... It's all relative. It's like a nursery rhyme. Going to England to meet the Queen because they accept shorter people more. Yeah. Why, why were the British, why did the British not discriminate against short people but the Irish did? I don't know. I, do you know what I think it is? What? This valorization of what's known as the big fucker. He's a big fucker. <laughs> Those lads out in Clare, oh, they're big fuckers out there. He plays goals. That's it. Whereas they obviously don't have that in Britain because they're better at horses. Yes. So they used, like, Oliver Cromwell yeah. was tiny, going around on a horse, chopping everyone and drawing his head off. So they're like, it doesn't matter about height. Yeah. And they're all inbred as well, the posh ones, so they're... <laughs> Go on. So I... <laughs> so I went over to England, I moved to London in 19... 19- can, you, can you move the mic? Like, like, I'll just move it, yeah. Like this, yeah, perfect. Yeah. There you go. See, you've got loads of experience. Um, yeah, so I moved... Is that too loud, though? No, that's no. grand. Yeah, so I moved to London. They need a bit of a fucking Claire Lilt up here. That's what they need to hear. <laughs> I need to... I'm, yeah, so I went to London in 1995, and unfortunately, I moved there the day before the Canary Wharf bombing. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. So I went down to the police recruitment centre the next day and said, Hi! <laughs> and... Like, this is the 90s now, and I'm from East Clare, so I was yeah. wearing a cardigan as well, and jeans, like an Aaron one. Yeah. And I was like, hi, and like, I really want to be a policewoman. So he said, fuck off home, Paddy. Are you fucking serious? Like, word for word, that's what he the said. The policeman said to you, fuck off home, Paddy. Yeah. He said, not only are you Irish, you're a fucking woman as well. Fuck off home. Yeah. Jesus We've Christ. moved on, we've moved on. Um, so I, I stayed in London for what about... What did that feel like? Well, I was only 19, so, you know, like, you don't have... Like, it's different now. I'm in my 40s. I don't really care about yeah. anything. So I just went, OK, thanks very much. And then Irish people are very polite. So I said, sorry for taking up your time. Thanks very much. Bye. And I left. And I got a job in the London Borough of Barnet uh, processing. Barnet, a place yeah. named after a haircut. Yeah. yeah. Bonnet. Uh, processing. I was never good at maths. I'm shit at maths. I'm very bad. Um, so I got this job processing invoices. 
Waterford, the town hall. I didn't even thrilling. understand. Thrilling, fucking what, thrilling. You have no idea. And on the first day I was there, they asked me to photocopy something. I'm from a small village in East Clare. I'd never seen a photocopier. So I went into the photocopy room. I was standing there looking at going, how the hell does that work? So the cleaner came in. I was like, have you ever used a photocopier? And she was like, yeah. And I said, can you help me out? So anyway, I had to process these invoices and send them off to town hall for payment. I probably shouldn't have said I was shit at maths. Why? Because um, I'm working in UCC and sometimes they might ask me to teach statistics. <laughs> I'm really... <laughs> I forgot I, really, I was a lecturer in college there and suddenly said I was shit at maths. I, I got an A for stats. No, do you know what you say? But you say that you're shit at maths and as a result of that, you're very good at lateral thinking. That's so there you go. It. So then uh, all the invoices came back from town hall because I hadn't processed the VAT. I hadn't worked out the VAT right. So the line manager came over and she said, oh, all the invoices came back, they're wrong. You didn't calculate the VAT. And I was like, yeah, sure, I know how to do it. So I, <laughs> she, she, I had a calculator on the desk and she said, will you do it there? So I was like just randomly typing in numbers. And she said like, no, that's not how you do it. Well, that's how we do it in Ireland. <laughs> so for about a year and a half, I, I lived in London and I really liked London and I made an awful lot of good friends there who are still very good friends to this day. But there were times that were really tough because you'd be on the tube and there'd be a bomb somewhere. Yeah. And uh, you, you know, you'd have to come up along and the police are outside and you just keep your head down and don't speak because yeah. you could get arrested for um, under the... Uh, you know, and, and going through the airport when you'd come home and there was racial profiling, you'd be pulled out and all that kind of stuff. So, so the answer to the, the question is you just say, you're not in a position to say anything because the country that you're from is doing these things in that country. Yeah. So, and that's why I feel really sorry for, for people who are Muslim who are living in, in, in yeah. anywhere now because, um, you know, I know what it's like to, to have to walk down the street and keep your mouth shut because I went to... Well, with um, them, like, at least with us, we were lucky enough. It's just our accent that gives us away. Yeah. But you see, I could we never dressed a certain way. Absolutely, yeah. I remember one time I went to um, Notting Hill Carnival, is that what it's called? And myself and my buddy were walking back. We saw Jamiroquai dancing on top of a car and it was all very cool. <laughs> yeah. he, was just, he was just randomly standing in front of a car. Dancing. As he does. Yeah. That's and, total before Instagram carry on. Yeah. And there was a little radio. Do you know the little ones that you put the battery in with the aerial? And it was just left like in the middle of nowhere. So my buddy said, oh my God, we'll rob that like, because we had no money. And <laughs> so she... Let's rob Jamiroquai's radio. No, I don't think it was Jamiroquai's. Okay, grand and then. We was, there was like nobody around only Jamiroquai on this radio. So... <laughs> She, she took the, she t I didn't take it. I did not take, she did. Okay. So then we got on the tube, right? And we were chatting, da, 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 and then we went, oh my God, we just picked up oh, for an sake. unattended electronic device off the street at a carnival. And now we've got it on the tube. So then we had to start talking to each other at Irish about where were we going to dump this radio? Ask Welgalik. Yeah, and what if we blew up the tube by accident? <laughs> Oh, shit. You we, thought it might have been a bomb. Yeah. Oh, my God. So do not steal unattended electronic <laughs> devices. Well, not in 1995, but you can get away with it now, maybe. Um, so the original question was, how did you get into psychology? We've gotten, oh, as, yeah. we've gotten as far as you robbing Jamiroquai's radio and it turning into a bomb. Um... Oh, yeah, so because they wouldn't have me, I started reading about forensic psychology. Okay. 
That's what we're talking about, psychology. And uh, I thought, oh... Did you, like, did you just find it in a magazine? Did you have any inclination that you wanted to do this? Or? Well... Yeah, and what is forensic psychology? Forensic psychology is the application of psychology to the criminal justice system. So... Now, like, is it as simple as... I don't, know, I don't know, like, a lot of these new podcasts about serial killers. Yeah. Like, does that not teeter in and out of forensic psychology? Understanding patterns and the behaviour yeah. and the mind of, of a serial killer and stuff. And yeah, so forensic psychology is basically taking social psychology, which is, social psychology is all about understanding how people behave in social contexts. Um, so forensic psychology is a new enough discipline. It only kind of emerged in the 90s. That's why I came across it in the 90s. Yeah. And it takes bits from lots of different psychology and applies it. So you have a bit of cognitive psychology, a bit of social psychology, um, environmental psychology and patterns of behaviour and, and just applying it to criminal behaviour. So I thought, that's really cool. I'll go to college and I'll become a, a forensic psychologist and then I'll go and I'll work for the police that way because they mightn't care that I'm short then. Yeah. Or that I'm Irish or a woman. <laughs> <laughs> and how did that work out for you? So I did. I did do And what that. did you do? You just went to a university and... Yeah. When I was 23, I went to UCC and uh, did a psychology... So they had forensic psychology in UCC in... in yeah, they did. And was it, it was a real emerging field at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and what about... I, I, I'm kind of on topic. I heard that serial killers always piss the bed <laughs> and set fire to things and harm animals and that's how you know if someone's a serial killer. Is that true? Well, is that forensic psychology? I hope not. My six-year-old went to bed last night. <laughs> no. Um, there are... So, so with some... Yeah, some people who do bad things have had very difficult childhoods and sometimes they do bad things in childhoods and then grow up. It's much more complicated than that. It's like a six-hour lecture. Of course, yeah. yeah. I, um, I didn't think it was those, those three things all no. of a sudden. Um, usually there's, there's a deficit in empathy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then that means that you can do whatever you want and you don't feel bad about it, which is pretty cool, I guess. Uh, <laughs> like, look at us working really hard for a living. You, know, you could just kill people and get loads of money. What, what about... See, I'm, com I, I'm coming at this from a real pop psycho... Like, I... My thing that I'd, I'd know about would be, like, I, I'm, I'm okay with cognitive psychology, uh, existential psychology, things like that. When it comes to, like, forensic psychology, it's like what I've read off the back of a cornflakes box type of stuff, you know? But um, is it true that, like, serial killers, they're born psychopaths, but it's also if they have a traumatic childhood too, and then there's other psychopaths that don't have traumatic childhood, but they, those people end up in business? Yeah. Is, is that, again, like, I'm just throwing... There's, there's, the there's a really... If you're interested in psychopaths, there's a really good book called... Um, uh, snakes in Suits, When Psychopaths Go to Work. Yeah. It's written by Bob Hare. So he's, um, he's a, 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 he was a psychopathic expert, basically, in, in the States. And, and when he, he, he did a lot of research on psychopaths, and about 3% of the population are psychopaths. Yeah. Some psychopaths might have experienced some kind of brain trauma when they're born, but yeah. most it's as a result of very life experiences. Um, so does that mean psychopathy, it's, it's not a genetic thing, it's more an environmental thing? Or, or do we know? Or can you even say that? You see, Kenya, I mean, they've spent... Kenya West, Kenya. he's not a fucking... Come on, chill because out now. there's millions, there's, there's been millions and millions and millions and millions of, of, of dollars and euros and pounds spent on trying to find um, an addiction gene. And they haven't found it. 
So um, I just think that people, human beings, are incredibly complicated and there's no one solution to anything. Yeah. It's, it's a biopsychosocial response. So it's part biological, part psychological and part social. That's a nice, yeah. So it's, and, and there's no, everyone is a different bit, yeah. like a spectrum. Yeah, we're all different bit. We're all, we're all biopsychosocial beings. And so when you were doing forensic psychology, you ended up working with the English police. No, I didn't. I, that sounded like an accusation. I didn't. I did not. I the totally refute English that police. accusation. Um, no, I worked in Angarda Siakana for a few years. Um, my first job actually was working with young people um, in Cork who were at risk or of or involved in crime. But when you're working with the guards, essentially, are you, is that moving towards criminalizing people then? Yes. Yeah. Because that's what they do, that's their job. That's the guard's job, yeah. Yeah. So I suppose when I was younger, what I thought was I wanted to catch bad people. Yeah. And then I suppose the more that I worked with people in the real world, the more I realized that there weren't, there are, as I said, about 3% of the population are psychopaths, so about 3% of people are, 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 are bad, and that's not even a nice thing to say. They're only in the situation that they are because, but for the grace of God, there go I. Yeah. But in terms of people who are involved in, in criminal activity, um, it, it's mostly people who are very sad or people who are very mad. Yeah. And, I mean, if you go into any prison in Ireland, uh, most of the people who are in prison, um, it, you know, it, they should be in hospital. Yeah. Um, getting um, help with all of the different issues that they have, their mental health issues and their substance dependence issues. Um, most people who commit crime are not bad people. Um, so they just is, is, have, is different, it, have walked different steps. So you are now somebody who, you tend not to criminalize in your view then? No. No? No. And is that a problem you think we have with the system? We have, like, there are laws, the laws exist, yeah. and, and On Garda Siakana has to um, enforce those laws. There will be members of On Garda Siakana who won't agree with all of the laws that we have, but yeah. when you sign up for the job, you have to, to do that. Yeah. Um, so uh, I hope, as a society, that we're getting more progressive and that we're going to start looking at things in a different way. So, you know, earlier... It's very That's a guard who left. Very, a very... <laughs> A very sad, upset guard. <laughs> it's not really, they probably just wanted to piss. Yeah. <laughs> she works in a call centre, we just heard, so she has to take a call. Um, um, that's what you do in call centres, isn't it? Call people up all the time. How are you getting on? Um, so my experience of working in Garda Shikana is, is everybody who joined wanted to make the world that they lived in in a safer place. Um, that's not my experience with all the guards that I know. That's fair on. enough, we can talk <laughs> about that. Um, that was, so, there's 13,000, I think there's 13,000 members of Angarda Siakana. In every single organisation, you're going to have people who are not fit for the job. Um, but most of the people I met with were very hard-working people who really wanted everybody to be happier. I think that Angarda Siakana have had a difficult time. Um, yeah. You know, well, the past 10 years, like, the numbers have been crunched. They've been shutting down stations everywhere. Yeah. So I would say guards today are, are, I don't think they're very happy. Um, friends of mine who are guards, what they will complain about a lot is what they say is that they've lost their powers of discretion. 
That's a so huge they can't thing. Yeah. So that means you constantly have to constantly reinforce. So if you meet a young fella down the road and he's done something stupid, in the past, they'd say, ah, sure, look, God loves us. So, you know, you know, and we'll give him a chance. Or you whatever. build a relationship. Yeah, and you build a relationship. It's very difficult to do that now because yeah. if you let him off, and then it ends up on the front of the Irish Daily Mail on Sunday, Garda Sharon yeah. Lambert gave 10 young fellas 10 chances. And I mean, it happened recently in relation to, to juvenile judges. Yeah. There was all these young people who hadn't been prosecuted. And most of, those, most of the young people that they were talking about, do you know where they are? Where? They're dead. They're dead. If you look at the statistics of the people that they are talking about who weren't prosecuted, they're dead. So prosecuting them was not what they needed anyway. Yeah. What was the point of it? But Angarda Shikana have to go out and they have to enforce those laws. Yeah. And then they no longer can use discretion um, because um, of, of mistakes that other members made. So very good people in Angarda Shikana have to pay for the mistakes that other members made. And can we try to be a little bit less controversial? I <laughs> Okay, I'll express an opinion that's controversial and then you can disagree with it or agree with it. Um, some people would say as well that, would say that, that a guard's loss of discretion, especially on things like... Like what my buddy says, that like, they can't community police anymore. No. They can't build relationships no. with the community. They can't have friendships. They can't turn a blind eye in the interest of a greater good because they're continually forced to, no, I must criminalize. Yeah, here's the controversial opinion. It's a way to, especially on the road, to earn more tax revenue, that a guard no longer can go, ah, look, I know you were speeding, but sure, look, will you be grand, instead of straight up with a ticket now? I, I, don't, I don't think so. Great. Um, <laughs> I think it's because they're worried that if they don't, and somebody somewhere complains about that, that their career will be on the line. Okay. And they might want to give you a chance, and then they're afraid that, so I get caught, and you go in, you say, well, Sharon Lambert got caught last week, and you let her off. Yeah. Somebody else then says, well, that's not good enough, and then that guard has to account for the fact that he let me off. So I don't think that individual members of Ngarda Shikana are interested in generating revenue. Uh, I yeah. think that they're very worried about n not, not being seen to do everything, dot every I and cross every T, uh, because it'd be a consequence for them. And you also work with the guards. Do you still work with the guards in... Not you're not a guard anymore, yeah? I was never a guard. I was always a civilian. I was Wait, how did that work out? So they hired me as a civilian. What? As a, so I was a psychologist, and I went to Templemore. Okay. So yeah. oh, well, you were training the guards in Templemore? Yeah. All right, so you're not a guard. No. Okay. What was I'm st I was still too... So they brought down the height, and by the time they brought down the height, I was too... I was, you're not going to believe this. This is the most fucking Irish conversation in the world. <laughs> so when they brought down the height of the, the thing to be in the guards, and I said, yay, I was too old. <laughs> oh, my God. They just didn't, they, they clearly didn't want me. I just had to accept it that they didn't want me. So yeah, I, I trained as a, friend, as a psychologist and then I went off down to Templemore and I worked So like years. in the most basic way, as a forensic psychologist, what would you teach a guard? Like some 19 year old lad in from Tip who's fond of the hurling and now he's got a baton in his hand. <laughs> what are you, like are you teaching young guards who are on the beat or is it? It was all levels. 
So, all levels. Yeah. So, like, what would be the most? I know there's some here because I saw some outside in the lobby earlier. Ah, uh, they're grand. They're grand. <laughs> they were high. Um, just like, like, what, what would, what would an Irish guard learn on day one about forensic psychology? Just, just to understand what it is. So I suppose the kind of things I was working on were investigative interviewing and, and in cognitive psychology, so how you apply psychology to interviewing, so understanding human memory. So Teaching people how to spot when people are lying? No, because you cannot do that. Really? No, isn't that what, a huge What about those, those lie detector tests? You can they? do, though, they're not, they're not always accurate, and we don't have that legislation in our country anyway. But it's things like, so... Just supposing you were involved in, in a traumatic incident and you'd had a lot of alcohol and you're trying to remember the details of it and you can't remember it all. There's different strategies that can, you can use to try and get people to recall information. So it's called the enhanced cognitive interview. Mm -hmm. um, so like your brain is really cool. It's got all these little folders. And it's, if you imagine your brain is like a computer and it's got all these little folders, so it's got a folder for sound, smell, taste. So do you know like when you're walking in the woods and it could be a summer day, and it's, you know, Christmas And you kill trees. someone. No. <laughs> and you smell like a Christmas tree smell. Yeah. So that opens your brain that's dealing with olfactory yeah, responses. I find smells can bring me back to memories more than any other sense. Yeah. Well, different people have different senses that are stronger. So yeah. you, you could be walking along, you get a smell, and boom, that, that oh, And then the part of your brain that deals with that smell says... That's connected to other things and other experiences. So, so it opens, it's like as if you've got four folders open on your desktop then. So it connects it to all of the other experiences. So if somebody was really drunk in a fishmonger's and killed someone, would you walk into the interrogation room with a mackerel? <laughs> is, is that kind of on the gist? You actually could. Yeah. So are you well, saying... Well, I couldn't because I'm not a member of Garda Shukana. Are I can't you saying religion. one of the guards... I don't know, might walk in smoking Marlboro Red. Because they, like, would, would... If the person wanted to confess. Yeah. yeah otherwise, then that would be... Uh, but are you saying the guards would actually use smells as a way to... They could if they wanted to, yeah. How if, would they do that? it was that? worth it. How? Well, no, With if... With a big petrol engine <laughs> into the fucking... You know, what you could do, so if somebody was having... So it's usually for witnesses and victims, so... Uh, you might say, if somebody was having a difficulty remembering something, you might say, oh, can you remember what you could hear? Okay. So can you, can you remember what you could hear at the time? Can you remember if you could taste anything? Can you remember if you could smell anything? So the, so the guard's open... line of questioning is going to be about senses and smells. So it's a real lateral form of questioning yeah. someone. So if you, hoping that you're going to open one of those sensory boxes that will then allow you to open. See, they're on the way now. I know, the fucking, you can hear that. Lord Mayor of Cork's in the audience going, she's giving away too much information. <laughs> can... can are you trying to go out and get pints or are you going for pisses? You can't get pints in the middle of the show. Um, can you hear Sharon all right? Yeah? Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so that was it. And then I just decided... We should know. I'd, I'd like to hear more about that type of stuff. I need to know about the guards getting people to, to smell things. <laughs> and so that's lesson one that you'd give a junior guard. What would be like lesson two? What other stuff? Well, we talk about mental health as well. Um, most people who, so most people who are involved in, in, in committing criminal offences have very difficult and challenging experiences. Yeah. It's not, you know, CSI Miami and serial killers. It's 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 people who haven't had the opportunities that they deserved. So we we talk a bit about that and, and kind of the impact on on and brain and behaviour. 
is the goal there for each and every guard to essentially have empathy, to understand if they're dealing with a person that they might have this particular baggage, or we'll say, you know, most people who don't have a member of their family with, um, we'll say, a psychosis or something. Yeah. Like, what if a guard came across somebody who was suffering from schizophrenia or something? Do you train that guard essentially to go, this is what this is? It was very, they got, they have a huge, so in Ireland our legislation is huge. There's a huge amount of legislation and that's the most important thing when you're training to be a guard. Because there's no, if you go out and arrest somebody and you've done one of the basics wrong, it's going to be thrown out of court. What, so, what are the basics now? Name the date of birth. And all all that right, okay. So get, get yeah. basically, uh, know, knowing how to read people their rights properly, and, and, and guard. They have to, the guard has to wear their hat all the time. There's lots of different things. So that's what they used to say in Limerick. <laughs> Seriously, the boys would be like, "Was he wearing his hat? Was he wearing his hat? <laughs> if he wasn't wearing his hat, you can go back up." All right, we won't talk about the guards anymore because I can tell it's making you nervous. It's not, no, I, I'm not nervous. I, I, I just, I do, I have a huge amount of empathy for members of Vanguardia Shikana because they sign up to do this job, you know, and it, it doesn't work out. Yeah. It can be very, very difficult. And, and they get an awful lot of training in relation to the legislation, which they have to do. And um, I don't, I, I think that sometimes, as you said, they might not be always prepared for... Yeah. And I mean, being in a classroom is not going to prepare you for, no. for the real world. And if, if you're from East Clare and you're stationed, and your first station is Store Street in Dublin, it's, it's a big shock to the system. Yeah. So I think it would be really nice if, um, if they had more training on the impact of poverty and deprivation, marginalisation addiction, that kind of stuff, um, so that they'd understand that when sometimes people behave in very challenging or difficult ways, if they were, you know, to be able to understand, for me, it's, I remember my other, myself and my other half were at home one night, we were watching Crime Watch or Crime Call or whatever that's called, and, you know, the CCTV bit, yeah. and this man just randomly, like, headbutted a fella outside of Bucky's. I think it was in Limerick, actually. That's, yeah. It was either Limerick or Dublin. It wasn't Cork, anyway. <laughs> and uh, uh, we were watching it, and my other said, Jesus, that's desperate. And I said, yeah, he's very dysregulated, isn't he? Very emotionally dysregulated. God love him. I wonder what happened. <laughs> so, like, when I see somebody who's acting in a, in a kind of an aggressive or threatening manner, as a psychologist, I'm interested in what, what has, what's happened. Yeah. What has happened that's made you feel, and I don't think that a lot of people are angry, I actually think they're frightened. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you work in a job where you have to deal with really high energy and sometimes aggressive situations, that it's much easier for you to be able to manage it if you understand where it's coming from. Yeah. And I'm very lucky I'm a psychologist, I understand where it's coming from. Yeah, um, so would you say too that, like you mentioned before, right, guards have to uphold the law and laws exist, Yeah. but, let's just say that someone who headbutts someone yeah. and they get caught and yeah. then they get done for assault and yeah. then they get two months in prison. Yeah. Like, would and you like... what's the point? Like, what's yeah, the what's point? Yeah, what's the point? Is, is that person, like, if you're saying there that, you know, you, you view anger as an expression of fear. Yeah. Is that person then allowed to understand, given any tools or any resources to understand or process the fear that motivated a, a headbutt outside of bookies? 
No, I mean, you said that earlier when, when you understood what an anxiety attack was, how empowered it was. And, and for me as well, like, you know, we all have stuff. We all have yeah. days where we're anxious or worried or frightened or whatever. And I'll have days where I'm just totally losing my shit. And I, you know, and then I'll take a deep breath and I'll go, oh, God, what's going on cognitively for you today, Sharon? And uh, I, can, I can understand. And I go, OK, so you're not actually cross. You're actually worried. Yeah. Do you see the way the Cork accent comes out there? Yeah. And when I get excited, I get real, I get pure Cork. Um, but um, like if, I would love if people were, had the opportunity to learn more about themselves and what's going on in their own bodies and their own brains so that yeah. they could have control over it. Um, I don't know if always as psychologists and psychiatrists, we give it away actually. Do we kind of hold on to it a little bit because it makes the, us the, all-knowing all and all-powerful? The academic problem that goes with a lot of issues is that it, there's barriers of language whereby... Yeah. Well, like, even, I've had a few people say to me, people who are actually themselves in psychology and academia, saying that they're doing this professionally and ways that I've said things, talking about CBT and stuff, has made them understand it better. Mm -hmm. Now, my thing is always... I'm about communication, so I think effective communication hang happens in the language of the receiver. Absolutely. So whoever's receiving it, that's how you put it. Oh, we went off topic. We were talking about Lynn Ruan and the fuck thing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's, Go on. So this is, this is not, this is back to that. Yeah. Which is that people judge people based on accents and language yes. and blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah, right? So if a young person rocks into your service and they're mad, like they're really mad because things have, they've just had a crap time. Do you and mean mad now as in angry or kind yeah, of just angry. a bit wired? Yeah, angry. yeah. And you know, they come in and they're fuck this, fuck you, fuck off, all that kind of thing. And then if a professional says, you know, I don't appreciate your language. Yeah. I don't like that because what it's saying is you don't match my middle class value system. Yeah. And I am here I am with my fabulous education. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to look down on you now. Yeah. And that little bit of self-esteem that you have, I'm going to totally strip it away from you. Yeah. And I'm going to make you jump through hoops you're never going to jump through because I'm going to talk to you in a way that you don't understand. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we, that I don't, and that's what I mean about marginalized groups accessing services. There's not enough diversity in, in services in terms of the people who delivered them either. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's okay to curse. Um, I'm more interested in the intention of the communication. Absolutely. Rather than the actual words that are used. I remember my very first job, I worked with young people who were at risk or involved in crime, and I went in and I was I'm all delighted with myself. Dr. Sharon Labert, I'm a psychologist, I'm delighted. And I went over to meet this young fella who was in a lot of trouble. And I went in and I said, hi, how are you? My name is Sharon. He was like, you're still a cunt. <laughs> I actually promised my mother I wouldn't say the C word. And I remember standing there going, oh my God, like, you know? And, and I couldn't believe it. And I was like, I'm here to help him and he's being abusive to me. I mean, Jesus Christ, I just spent seven years at university so come out and help you and now you're calling me names. And... Like that, and, you know, when I went home and I thought about it and I thought, you know, sometimes I wonder if we go to do these jobs. Are you, are you I'm checking. There, I was, like there was supposed to be a clock there so when I can see what time we have. Where's the clock? Is it pointing towards me? No, ye? it's here, look. Oh, my foot's in front of it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, you have to stop me. I go on. Um, 
So what it made me think about was, what were we talking about? You were talking about, I, I, some, some young lad called you a cunt. Oh yeah, and then I went home. <laughs> and I was, like it hurt my ego. Okay, it yeah. It hurt my ego. Yeah. So then I went home and I thought about it, and I thought sometimes when we go to work, are we doing it because we want people to like us? Yeah. Or because we want to serve people? Yeah. And if you want people to like you, then there's certain jobs you shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. If you want people to like you, make wedding cakes. People are always really grateful <laughs> with their wedding cake. Or um, be a funeral person. Yeah. Um, you have no time for being, being a bastard. Do you know, if it's a funeral. Dentists don't get thank you cards, you know. Like, like, yeah, no one's going to thank their dentist, no. really. Um, thanks, thanks for essentially beating me up, but I was in a chair. Yeah. So, and sometimes with, I suppose, the jobs that I've done, I have worked with, with, with people where you have to spend a long time building a relationship um, because there's lots of reasons why they're not interested in building a relationship and you have to go slowly. So for those jobs, you have to say that, don't go into that if, it's, if you're there because you want somebody to like you because, you know, that's what I have kids for. They're, you know, they're young and they still like me because they don't, you know, yeah. they're not at that age yet. But when I go to work, like, they still believe everything I say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but when I go to, if you go to work and somebody does say, you know, fuck off. Yeah. Um, that's, it's not about me. It's about wonder what it is that makes it really difficult for this person. Yeah. Um, and maybe it is because they don't like me. And then if that's the case, then they should be given to somebody else. Yeah. Because it's not about my ego. It's about them being and served. Does a lot that of make that, sense? Yeah, a lot of it sounds quite similar to, to psychotherapy. Yes. Like in, in psychotherapy, like that would be called resistance. Or, you know, you'd refer someone to a different therapist. But like, how long did it take you to develop the skill of... Like, would you be treated in, in a, like, a, we'll say, a verbally abusive fashion regularly as part of your job, or people who are well, in Well, no, that... I'm in UCC now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> For the first six months I was there, I was like, oh, my God, this is really weird. Nobody has cursed at me. And on my first week there, I used to work in a service where there was a lot of young people who were in a lot of trouble, and there was a lot of drugs and drug debt and fighting and all that kind of stuff. And... Uh, uh, there'd, there'd, there'd be scuffles and, you know, yeah. stuff like that. But I was sitting in, the, in my, my new office with my fancy chair in UCC, and I was there about 10 days, and I heard all these raised voices in the corridor, and I thought, oh, shit, there's a row. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to go out and deal with it. So I went out, and there's all these lovely young UCC students, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> you know, and I was... But it took... It was funny, actually. It took me a while to come... Being, working in a job where you have to be really mindful of what you do and what you say because you don't want to trigger somebody off. Um, and then to go into UCC where, where everybody's nice to you. It, it took a while to, yeah. to adjust to that, actually. And that, that's one of the things I'm interested in is the impact on people of working in environments where you're working with people who've just had a really, really tough time. Yeah. I don't like people saying challenging behavior. Yeah. I don't think people have challenging behavior. I think they're just trying to tell you something. And when you mean challenge someone, like what we would call antisocial or someone, yeah, as I in don't. the person is not trying to challenge you, this is their current language at this time to try and understand something I think themselves. that that's an adaptive response. The challenging 
the challenging behaviour yeah. is an adaptive so response. So one of the examples I give sometimes, so if, I, if I've lived in an environment or a community or a home where there's a lot, so if, if I lived in a community where there was a lot of community violence, every time you leave the door, uh, you have to be on guard. So it means your, your brain is, it goes into fight and flight. Mm -hmm. um, so you might have to adopt behaviours to keep yourself safe. So that might be to walk a particular way or yeah. to talk a particular way. And at, at, a, at, a, at that time, that behavior is really important to keep you safe. And the thing is that you just develop those patterns of behavior and then you become an adult and then you go into different settings, but you keep using the same behaviors. And they worked really well at a time when you needed, when you needed them to keep you alive, mm -hmm. but now they're not working. So, you know, you might have, you know, experienced a lot of adversity in, in your home. You might have had lived with a, a domestic violence and that's made you, you know, appear very aggressive or challenging. And then you go to a doctor's waiting room and you're sitting there and you, and you become aggressive and challenging. And it's because you have this, this pattern of behavior that worked really well in one setting, but it doesn't work in this. And, and it's just about understanding where that person is coming from and giving them the skills and the tools to understand what's happening in their brain and how it's impacting on their behavior. I, I brought my six-month-old to A&E. Um, uh, you know when you have your first baby and they get a rash and a temperature, what's the first thing you think about? Meningitis. Okay, so, yeah. um, my first baby, and she was six months old, and I brought her to South Dock in Blackpool, and he looked very worried, and he gave me a letter, and he brought her. So by the time we got to the hospital, I was convinced that that child had meningitis. So what happens when you go into fight and flight? Your heart rate increases. Yeah. You're pumped, ready to, you know, either and fight you or also, flight. You won't let in any rational information that says no. the child so, doesn't have meningitis yeah. as well. So your prefrontal cortex, which is your thinking brain, which is here. Yeah. In order to in order to survive a dangerous situation, this is the part of your brain that does all of your thinking and analysing and planning ahead and understanding and you consequences. Can like if you get angry as well, you can f feel getting hot here. Do you? I do anyway, yeah. Do you want to tell me a bit more about that? <laughs> is that not my prefrontal? Is that not? It that? is, yeah, but I don't know if it gets. Hot. Anyway, it doesn't me anyway. It does. I, I must. Why do you think mind. I wear a fucking bag? <laughs> so what happens? So in an emergency situation, so if you are driving down the road and a child runs out in front of you, your body. The, the, your brain, the middle part of your brain, perceives the threat. It says, danger, danger, Sharon. And because we don't trust your brain in an emergency situation, we're going to turn off the front part of your brain, which deals with thinking. We're going to activate your fight and flight response. No thinking will happen. We will perceive the threat. We will react to the threat. And you won't think about it. Because if you stop to think about it, Sharon, you'll overanalyze it and you'll be dead. So the brain is incredibly credi incredible at keeping you safe. So... I rock up to A&E with the little baby and the man behind the desk is there and I'm a new mother and I'm terrified. So I've left my prefrontal cortex. Yeah. So I hand him the letter and he, he's talking to somebody about a match or something. Obviously not perceiving, you know, the urgency of yeah, my particular yeah. case. And then he, I say to him, sorry, can you get a doctor? Like, it's kind of, you know, serious. And he said, yeah, I'll be with you in a minute. And then I said, no, like, can you get a doctor? And he put up his hand... And he said, I told you I'd be with you in a minute. And I said, can you get me a fucking doctor now? So then he points to the sign that says, abuse towards staff will not be tolerated. So what do I need to be able to read that sign? 
my prefrontal yeah. cortex. So then my other half is there and he's apologizing on my behalf and I'm like, don't you say that. Anyway, the child was fine. But <laughs> what's interesting to me is if you think about it, I'm somebody who has good internal resources yeah. because I'm, you know, I'm a psychologist, I'm lucky I live in a nice house and I have a lovely family and I, you know, I can pay the mortgage at the end of the month. I, I've also had to you know, do a lot of personal therapy and, yeah. and stuff like that. So if I can behave like that in that moment... With all these tools. With all these tools, then why do we judge people when they totally lose their cool, when they've got so much stress going on? It is absolutely appropriate to for your prefrontal cortex to switch off when your fight and flight system is highly activated. So back to the, God, this takes so long to get to the point. It doesn't, I'm, I'm enthralled. Um, everybody else is asleep like. They're not. Um, so, so that's the thing is, that's why I don't agree with the term challenging behavior because it assumes that the person is 100% responsible and I don't buy that. Yeah. I think that they're, trying their very best in a very difficult situation. And rather than excluding somebody from your service, what I'm interested in is how we can apply psychology and our understanding of stress and trauma on the brain to say, well, if my service, so just supposing you, you know, kick off or whatever in the waiting room. So rather than say, blind boy is not welcome in our service because he's a total bollocks. Yeah. Why not say, what is it about our service that makes it so hard for a blind boy to be able to access it. Okay. And what could I do differently so that he can get the service that he needs? So that's what I do. That's my research, which was one of the first questions that you asked. <laughs> hey, we got there. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the bar is open now for an intermission for 20 minutes, all right? Twenty-five minutes for pints, you greedy bastards. <laughs> Eating into your own showtime. Um so let's talk about hash. <laughs> because you are a big fan of the criminalization of cannabis. The research is a big fan of yeah. decriminalization. Um yeah, no, no, it's, it's actually quite a serious thing. Um, you know, just for example, supposing if you got caught with a bag of weed tomorrow because of who you are, you're unlikely to end up in court. I, I would literally put the bag on and say, guard, I'm blind boy, and they'd leave me off. Yeah. Um, even, but you'd have the financial resources to get yourself yeah. a really good solicitor and all that kind of stuff. If you but I've, like, listen, 2010, when all of my buddies were emigrating, the ones that couldn't were the ones who were caught with an ounce or more yeah. of their own possession. And then they, they didn't have the opportunity then to emigrate and to do what the rest of the lads were doing. Yeah. Um, I suppose why I'm, a, why I'm a fan of decriminalization is two reasons. First, in relation to young people, that lovely brief prefrontal cortex that we were talking about earlier, yeah. that's not fully formed until you're 23. Yeah. So when you turn 18, you, you go into adult services even though your brain isn't fully mature. Yeah. So it's not like when you're at home and you wake up at 18, you go, oh, now I'm going to start planning for my mortgage. Um, so th your brain can, it keeps growing and developing. And the last part to develop is the prefrontal cortex. And that's the bit that does uh, planning ahead, impulse control, understanding consequences and risk. 
So that's the reason why young men uh, are more likely to be involved in high-speed car crashes. They understand the risk, but they're prepared to take it because the part of the brain that deals with impulse control isn't working properly. And that was really useful once upon a time. So the society that we live in has changed an awful lot. But um, us as human beings haven't, and our brain hasn't. So, you know, a thousand years ago when we were living in caves, like I'm in my mid-40s, you didn't send people in their mid-40s out at night time to catch a boar because I'd be worried about me hip or, you know. Yeah, and, and a, bro a broken leg yeah. 30,000 years ago, is that's a death sentence. Yeah. yeah, so what you did is you sent young men between the age of 16 and 25 out at night time to catch and hunt your food because they were prepared to take risks and act on impulses. So this is the evolutionary reason why we are like this now? Yeah. Okay. We, we haven't really evolved since then. Um, unfortunately, our society has. So we think do you think, do you think uh, societies would take advantage of this by... Like, the average soldier is going to be 18, 19. So it's, it, they know this. We'll yeah. send, like, World War I. Yeah. World War I is 17, 18-year-old lads marching towards machine guns. I remember when I was working in an addiction service and there had been a couple of uh, deaths in, re in relation to young people. And... Um, I was driving home from work and I was listening to Matt Cooper on Today FM or whatever it is. And uh, he said, coming up after the break, we're going to have uh, a psychologist on from the States who's going to talk to us about how you can stop young people from taking drugs. And I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. My job is going to be so much easier. Pulled in at the side of the road. Be late like the kids. It'll be grand. And um, he said, Matt Cooper said, how do you stop young people from taking drugs? And he said, you can't. And I thought, oh, Jesus. And... You know, and, and I, even though I was a psychologist and I knew all that, sometimes when you're working in the job, it's all chaotic and, and stuff and you just get swept up in it. And, and, and that's the thing is, and, and he said that, he said the reason why we send young men to war is because they, they know that there's a risk of death, but they're prepared to take that risk and they're also not fully aware of the consequence. Yeah. Um, and that's not a bad thing, you see. Because there was once upon a time that as human beings, we needed those young men to survive. Yeah. But our society hasn't created a space for those young men anymore. Yeah. What are they supposed to do now with their risk-taking risk and their impulse control? The other thing in relation... Are you saying that might be a contributing factor towards abuse of drugs? No. Yeah. No, that's a different thing. We'll come back to that. Well, minute. like... No, doing a big this load is of coke where, no, this and ketamine is, is a risk. We know we're on topic. We're talking okay, about okay. decriminalization. Um, so what it is, is if you have a young person, we'll say under the age of 25, understands that if you, if you smoke weed, it's not, it, it, is, if it would be better for you to drink lots of water and have a plant-based diet and get lots of exercise every day. That is the ideal scenario. Yeah. But sometimes people like to have a drink or they like to use drugs. Yeah. Um, the more of it you use, the, the worse it is for you. Yeah. Okay? But if you're a young person, it, 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 is, it is, you know, kind of normal-ish for, for young people to experiment with recreational drug use. Yeah. Um, and if you say to a young person, you know, a 17-year-old, well, you know, you don't buy weed now because if you're caught with a bag of weed, you'll never be able to go to America. You're talking about long-term thinking there, and the brain okay. isn't programmed for that. Yeah, yeah. So they'll take the risk, then the consequence is huge. So if you have a 19-year-old who ends up with a criminal conviction for a 50-euro bag of weed, the consequences of that for the rest of their lives yeah. is just horrific. And I don't think that's fair, because you and I are sitting here drinking alcohol. 
one of the most dangerous drugs in our country. Yeah. And that's legal. And we're not going to pay a consequence for that. But a young person who does something that's developmentally appropriate to be experimenting and taking risks and then gets criminalized. I'm not talking about legalization. I don't know where I am with that. Uh, I do know where I am with decriminalization. We know what happened in Portugal. Do you know how many people die every day in Ireland as a result of drug and alcohol related death? No. Two per day. Well. Uh, I think the latest number for 2015, so I know the stats for 2015 because I wrote a paper on it. In 2015, 697 people died in Ireland as a result of a drug and alcohol related death. Do you know how many people died in road accidents that year? 197. Died of what? Road accidents. Road accidents, yeah. 27 people died from the flu. Um, so if you criminalise young people, you limit their options. And, you know, there are students all over Ireland uh, who will want to do placements and they'll want to travel abroad and then want to do all of those things. And they're blocked from progressing because they've done things that were not the end of the world things, but they have to pay for them for the rest of their life. And decriminalization does not help people, or criminalizing people who've made you know, who've been caught doing things like that does not open doors for them and does not give them an opportunity to have yeah. a most fil ful fulfilled life. It actually does the opposite. Um, oh yeah, the drug-related death thing, to go back to topic. Uh, if you look at Portugal, yeah. do you know how many people died in Portugal? In, so in 2015 in Ireland, 697 people died as a result of a drug and alcohol-related death. How many people died in Portugal that year? I don't know. Two. What? And Two. they have a bigger population. Two people died as a result of drug and alcohol-related deaths in Portugal that year. So, so can you because they have decriminalized drugs. So, so, so instead, but of, they're still doing drugs. They're still doing drugs, but so instead what, what's of wasting, the change? What's, what's so instead of wasting all of the money that's involved in the criminal justice system of you know arrest, detention, paperwork, courts, incarceration. So instead, you divert that money away from the criminal justice system and you divert it into into other services drug and alcohol services, okay. education and employment services. Um, but on the ground, like, does that mean somebody will say, because they had access to clean needles, we'll say? Yeah, like, like, safe injecting rooms. Yeah, what does it look like? What does that look like, that world, what, what that Portugal has, we'll say, that's saving people's lives as opposed to here where they're dying? I suppose they're treating drug use as, as a health issue as opposed to a criminal issue, and also as a human rights issue, actually. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm interested in. So I'm interested in the fact that... Everything is decriminalised, like even heroin is decriminalised. Yeah. For personal possession. Okay. So if you're caught like with, you know, a million euros worth of heroin in Portugal, you're going down. Okay. Um, but uh, if, if you're caught with, with personal use, because people who, who, use, uh, who use drugs... Um, you know, if they have that quantity on them. So if you take heroin, for an example, if you're using heroin, you have to use it, otherwise you yeah. will get really sick. Yeah. So if you're caught with a small amount of, of heroin on you, you have it because you need it, because you're sick. And I remember somebody saying, you wouldn't take insulin off a diabetic. No. Um, so, you know, if somebody is using heroin, then there's the whole judgment. Well, it's his own fault for starting it in the first place. Well, then you didn't understand what I said just before the break, which yeah. is about the way the brain works. And if somebody is in fight and flight, if you've experienced a lot of stress and your mental health is really bad, and in the absence of any intervention, 
what is a good thing. Like, you know, if you were really stressed in a blind way, yeah. and you're sitting at home on your couch, and you want to wind down, what do you do? I'd have a small bit of hash. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say a beer. <laughs> All right. Right. Uh, no, I... <laughs> Do you don't have to over-disclose. <laughs> so that's what you do, right? So what you're saying is that that's what you're doing for your mental... Now you could choose to do other things. You could, like well, to be honest, I'll, I'll, no, I'm only taking the piss there. My, my, no, but I, I do smoke hash, lads. My whole thing with substances is I evaluate my relationship with it. So yes. I will never... I try not to use an external thing to mediate an internal problem. So if I'm feeling stressed and I notice, fuck it, I'd love a can, fuck it, I'd love a joint, I know that's not good. How about I meditate or I be mindful or maybe I write how I'm feeling down, work through the emotions, and once I've done that, I tend not to want a can or a joint. Like you're nearly self-actualized in Maslow's hierarchy. I don't know about that now. <laughs> I know. Who t Bono thinks he's self-actualized. Well, you're up there. Um, but if you think about, you know, people who are living in difficult circumstances and don't have the access to the kind of yeah. knowledge that you have. Now, when I was fucking 19 and I was getting panic attacks, I would think, right, what if I have six cans? Yeah. Because it would work yeah. for a small amount of time, and that is toxic as fuck. So what that's telling me is that you're self-medicating a mental health Essentially. Issue. And is, that, yeah. is that what dual diagnosis is? Oh yeah, a lot of people don't like the term dual diagnosis because okay. it's a bit stigmatizing. But yeah, dual diagnosis is where you use substances and you have a mental health issue. Yeah. Um, we don't really have dual diagnosis services in Ireland. Because I had on this podcast, uh, Grace Dias is her name, and she yeah, does. No, uh, she writes plays around addiction, and Grace basically said that any person that she's met, either in her life or through her work, especially with heroin she doesn't know any of them who don't also suffer from severe mental health issues and also abuse or trauma. Yeah. So therefore, the heroin isn't recreational, it's actually a form of self-medication because there are no services that exist to assist that person. What would you think of that? Well, uh, interestingly enough, I did a research project on that. So we did a research project in um, Cork Simon, actually one of my collaborators is in the audience, the GP from just for the American people, because they're going to go, who's Cork Simon and why oh, yeah. are you allowed inside in him? Oh, so there's a, uh, so Cork Simon is a, an or, the Cork Simon community is, an, uh, you know, they work with uh, people who are, but there's loads of stuff we've talked about that doesn't translate. I know, the poor old yanks. Um, <laughs> is it going to be like, do you remember when they did the snapper and they had to do the subtitles at the bottom? I can't subtitle a podcast. I can, I oh, can. Oh, yeah. I can. Jesus. I'm in my 40s, I'm keeping up, trying to keep up with the technology stuff. Um, you could have like a person in the background, you could do like little pauses. I could, yeah, in one ear I could have me talking and then in the other ear I have an American translating it and you just listen like this. <laughs> a guard is a police officer. Yeah. And they are often big fuckers from Clare. Uh, what were we talking about? Oh, dual diagnosis. Dual diagnosis, um, yeah. First off, why is dual diagnosis kind of a term that... No, we were talking about Cork-Simon. So Cork-Simon obviously works with... <laughs> You're worse than me. Um, who's going to keep us on track? I don't know. The so, mayor of Cork. 
Uh, the Simon community in Cork. Yeah, so we did a research project where uh, 50 people who were using the services, so people who were experiencing homelessness. And, and, and what is Simon community? That, that's a homeless service. It's a homeless it? service, yeah. yeah, people experiencing homelessness. And uh, what we did was, so people who work in homelessness will say to you that the people that they work with have experienced a lot of adversity in their lifetimes. Yeah. So there might be childhood trauma, there might be adult traumas, and being homeless in itself is a trauma. Mm -hmm. um, so you can have... You know, and, and everybody in homelessness is very different and has a different and, story. And what is trauma? Psychological trauma is a subjective experience of experiencing your internal and your external world as frightening. Wow, okay, so it's the both of them together. Yeah, so panic attacks are a really good example. So you might go, you might have difficulty in waiting. So waiting might be difficult for you because... So to give it, oh, this is going to get really serious now. You're grand. Um, so we'll say if you live in a home where there was a lot of domestic violence. Yeah. And uh, if you were lying in bed at night time and you were a smallie and uh, you're waiting for the noise downstairs, because your brain is so clever, it says to you in your procedural memory part of your brain, which is, is right back here, it says, you know, uh, Sharon, when you're waiting, you're in danger. We don't really know why, mm -hmm. but we know you're in danger. So every time you're in danger, what we're going to do is we're going to activate, when, when you're waiting, we're going to activate your fight and flight response. So supposing you're in A&E and it's yeah. a six hour waiting time, you're sitting there and your brain goes back and it says, mm, the waiting is dangerous. Can't remember why, but it's really important now that we trigger the fight or flight. So I'll either kick off uh, and get and, thrown and out. And that's what's called a trigger. Yeah, but then we'll say if I have anxiety as well, so my heart starts to increase. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to perceive my insides as being a risk to me. And you'll know if you've had a panic attack, yeah. that sometimes you think that you're going to die. That, yeah. yeah, straight up, that was my panic attack. It's like, I am going to die in a half yeah. an hour. I don't know why, but I'm pretty sure I'll yeah. be dead. Um, you know, uh, I remember when, I think kind of anxiety is normal. I think when I was 19, I had a lot of anxiety. And I remember going to bed one night and I had, I, I, I think I, I, was, I don't know anyone really, to be, uh, to be honest, who has ever said, no, I've never had an anxiety attack. Liars, aren't they, if they say that. But I had a panic attack, I think, when I was 19 and I was lying down. And, you know, when you get a panic attack and you, you're not getting enough oxygen, so you get pins and needles in your yeah, hands and yeah. your feet and your lips and all that. So because I had all of that experience, I thought, oh my God, I've got leukemia. <laughs> oh, yeah. Classic anxiety thought. He's actually serious. That's true. It's true, it's though. It's true. And that's the fight or flight part of the brain. Yeah. You won't let any rational information no. in. So it's lying I used to think that my yeah. shadow was a different person. So I went... And I was, like, really entertaining that idea, like, better not look at my shadow. So I went to the doctor the next day. I went in and said, I've got leukemia. I need to get a blood test. So I came back and I was fine. My arm was But I'm guessing up. when you were getting that anxiety attack, you didn't know what it was. No, I had leukemia. There you go. Yeah. It's like, I've got leukemia and this is why I feel this and way. And then when the blood test came back and I said I was fine, I was like, that's great. But then I had another panic attack and I was lying in bed and I thought, this is really sad. I'm dying and nobody knows. Only yeah, me. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're laughing like, it's terrible. <laughs> I was dying. I was 19 and nobody knew. Um, but the kind of the serious part of that is that um, like you and I are lucky we've, we've had the opportunity to go to therapy I, I, I was stuff. lucky to be in college and because I yeah. was in college it meant that I had access to counselling because you go to student services if I didn't have that mm. I wouldn't have anyone to say it to me the first thing the counsellor said to me was that was a panic attack 
that's like a fire alarm going off in a building, but there's no fire. When I heard that, 50% mm. of the, the panic attacks didn't go away, but the fear of me being broken or me going to die or, I, I got agoraphobia, I was staying away from anywhere where it happened. 50% of that went away because now I had a language. Mm. And then I went and read about what a panic attack was. And then I, it, it was like, uh, all right, uh, the sweaty palms, all of these symptoms. And just seeing them went, it's not nice, but at least I'm normal. Yeah. That was massive, to find out that I am normal. So, will we go backwards again? So trauma is the internal and external world is dangerous but you don't know that it is because the part of your brain that deals with thinking is not, is gone offline. So it's expressed as just a, t a feeling. You, uh, you don't even have, sometimes have a feeling. You might just have a physiological, yeah, you might be angry mm -hmm. uh, or you might be withdrawn. Um, so when we looked at, uh, we looked at a group of, of uh, people who were experiencing homelessness and we, they had very significant levels of very unpleasant experiences. And, and how do you assess the trauma, is it through talk therapy? Is it through them disclosing, we'll say, what happened to them in their life or things like that? Well, as in psychologists who work out in the community yeah. now, yeah, because I don't. So, yeah, there's, you have to be really careful. And, and how much of the trauma as well is completely unconscious? How much of the, the memories that triggered the trauma are, are just outside of that person's awareness because they were so painful? The other thing is how much of it is yours and how much of it is somebody else's. I watched a YouTube video that you did with Russell Brand. Yeah. I, or, well, obviously you didn't do a YouTube video. I, I just saw it on YouTube. Yeah. Um, and you would talk, he asked you about why you were anxious. Yeah. And you said it was because your great-grandfather was anxious because he was I, fucking starving in the famine. The famine, I do believe yeah. that. I believe that I... I and and it, I don't believe I genetically inherited it. I just... Behaviours. No, but I'm... I know it sounds nuts, but like... No, I'm going to tell you my story now in a minute. I have an intergenerational trauma story. You have an intergenerational... From go 1973. For it. Go on. So, this is like a really... Just to give you an example, so my grandmother died in 1975. I was born in 1976, so I never met her. But she went to Roach's stores. Oh no, hang on, I'll go backwards. I was in, Ma I was in a shopping, in a mall. Uh, <laughs> I was in a mall. Go on. For the English listeners, it's a shopping center. Um, so I was in a shopping center in Cork, it's called Mahan Point, with my daughter. And we were coming up to the escalator and my mother was with me. And the, the big one was this uh, eight-year-old. And she said, don't think, just jump, Mom. And I said, that's right. And when we get off the top or whatever. So my mother said, what's that about? And I said, oh, Sarah's frightened of escalators. But it's my fault because I'm frightened of escalators. And my mother said, that's very interesting because I'm frightened of escalators. But I know why. So my grandmother, who died in 1975, which was a year before I was born, went to Roach stores in Limerick in 1973 and saw a small child fall on an escalator. And her hair got all pulled out at the top. And uh, you're all at risk of vicarious trauma now, if you just imagine <laughs> that. Um, so uh, she went home to East Clare and told her 14 children. Oh, so, fuck. Yeah. So then they went on. I don't know how many. I think like I've got 43 first cousins on that side. So uh, all frightened of escalators. And then... Uh, <laughs> but... So then, like, in 20... Is that why all of your cousins live in bungalows? Yeah, I actually live in a bungalow. That is so... <laughs> I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. I, I can't have the stairs in the house. It's really weird. But um, maybe it's that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, blind boy. <laughs> um, but 
it was always really interesting to me then was that a, a little girl in 2018 was frightened of something because it's something that happened to a woman that neither her or I had ever met. And but for the fact that my mother was there that day, we probably wouldn't have even made the connection. And once we made the connection and I realized it wasn't my fear, it was somebody else's, I became less, I, the, the escalators became less frightened. But do you think, because there's what's called epigenetic trauma. Yeah, the, the research is a bit... I'd say that's, like, is that dodgy enough? Like, tra trauma in the genes, like... Uh, like, I blame my trauma. Like, when I say I, I can... I can trace my panic attacks back to the famine. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I Look, I got panic attacks. My dad got panic attacks. He learned panic attacks off his ma, and then his ma was in the famine. <laughs> so I do see that, and, and I'd imagine the, pan, you know, the famine's gonna trigger an odd panic attack, wouldn't it? <laughs> Everyone's eating grass. <laughs> Can't be great, that's quite frightening. So I don't think it's, irrational for me to think that because no, they're just learned behaviours they're lear like, I think they're learned behaviours there is a lot of research being done on the epigenetics and we'll see what comes out of that that'll be very interesting like how do you test that how do you test blood I don't know I'm a psychologist <laughs> oh so you, you don't de like, no actually, I don't what's that called what's it called when, when because there are other areas of, of is that psychiatry like there, I, I was recommended a guest tonight in someone who studies the relationship between the gut and the brain. You have to, that's John Cryan, he's, that's, he's an amazing speaker and super interesting so research. So what's that called? Because uh, that, that's was, physical he's body. A, come on, microbiologist <laughs> and a neuroscientist. And what else? Neuroscientist, he's a microbiologist, is it? Who shouted it out? Okay, he's not a fucking chemist. <laughs> A biochemist. A biochemist. Okay. Um, their work is so they have a book called The Probiotic Revolution. Yeah. Very, very interesting. You have to read that. Put that on your list now. Um, but what are we talking about? We're ta like, so we were talking about, uh, you know. Oh, epigenetics. Yeah. The, yeah. the, the no, evidence on epigenetics is, is I weird. I think it's behaviors. I, yeah. I, well, but uh, I'm. At the moment, that's what the evidence is. And it makes but I'm sense. Open to, I'm open to more like, evidence. We, we learn good things off our parents yeah. and we learn bad things off our parents. Yeah. Do you know? And for me... Which I shouted at the kids yesterday. If it was raining, you'd want to be outside. Like, where did I hear that from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and where did she hear that from? Yeah. So, uh, we but keep carrying on the same patterns. And have you, have you read the... Um, this is another little plug now, but um, The Atlas of an Irish Revolution won Board Gosh Book of the Year. I can't remember if it was last year or the year before, but that was a book that came out of UCC. It's, it's a really excellent book on the history. You will love this book on the history of, of Ireland uh, and of the Irish Revolution. Now you want a reinforced coffee table because I bought one and like, it's ginormous. But I was sitting at home and I opened it all excited. You know, I'm gonna learn a bit about history and I'm gonna be all, you know, cool. And I read the first couple of pages and it was about the famine and I got a little pain here. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's my gut now. Mm -hmm. That's my famine gut. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And, you know, whatever one of my ancestors had to eat back off a tree, uh, that's... Because ha, have you ever read uh, Under the Hawthorn Tree? No. Oh, my God. It's a children's book. I, I don't know how they thought that this was a good idea as a children's book. It's about a little girl in the famine. It is one of the most traumatic things I've ever... I think I read it when I was 12. I still dream about it. Mm -hmm. And, um, like, people eating dead dogs and uh, blades of grass and all that kind of stuff. So... That stuff has to be stuck to us. 
in our behaviour. So if you think about my, my grandmother's experience of the escalators, that there's a girl in 2018, an 8-year-old girl in 2018, who's frightened because of something that never happened to her. What else have we got? What other That's stuff what I mean. That's just one tiny of? little isolated incident. So, yeah. like, Look, one of the, the questions I got asked happened. tonight, right, one of the questions I got asked tonight uh, for you was, what about, we'll say, the, uh, the Irish are seen as a nation of alcoholics. Yeah, oh, good. But, like, to look at... Was that a, a, an empathic sneeze? <laughs> um, but, like, to look at, we'll say, addiction in Ireland, and then to go, can that be... Post, is that post-colonial? Like, we've had so much of this murder and bloodshed and trauma in 800 years of this fucking country. Recently, up in fucking Bloody Sunday was only 40 years ago, 50 years ago. I remember exactly where I was standing on the day of the Omar bombing. Because it was in 96? Yeah, it was one of the most horrific things. Because I suppose in the past as well, you didn't have things on screen maybe, so you, you didn't have to see things as much as, as you can now. Uh, but I remember exactly where I was standing on the day of the Ulmer bombing when it came on the television, but, on the news. So that, that's a public thing. So that's mm. something that a lot of people experience. Is it... Can... Like, are, are, it's fair to say that in, in this country, our, our drink culture is probably toxic we consider binge drinking to be completely normal, right? I was just in Spain. I was in a city the size of Cork and I was the only drunk person there. <laughs> Genuinely, and for me, that's healthy drinking. I was like sitting down going, I'm going to have six pints. Uh, what do you think when I say six pints? Are you going, oh, you mad bastard? That's normal, six pints is normal. That's a, that's a Friday night. In Spain, that's a three-day hangover for me. I could not cope. Really? <laughs> yeah. In Spain, the, the idea of six pints in Spain is, is a w once a year and something to be really shameful about. Mm. They are able to have a beer that's that size and they'll sip on it for two hours. That's not present in their culture. But we'll say something like how we drink in this society and how we've normalized utterly binging. Uh, as almost a form of, I do believe it as well as a form of medi medication in a sense too, because if I look back at, you know, how did I learn that it's okay to get utterly pissed? Yeah. I don't know how to have one pint. Now, I wouldn't consider myself to have a drink problem. I'll drink once a week, but I don't have one pint. I'm like, I'm having six. For me, that started when I had to get to the point in my life where I had to talk to girls. So teenage discos, you go to the teenage disco when you're 12, 13, everyone's on both sides of the rooms. Right, you've got girls here, you've got boys there. One brave person is gonna dance with a girl and everyone will giggle. Two years later when you're 14, what's happening? Everyone's doing nag nagging's of vodka and everyone's shifting. The alcohol intervened as the way for whatever shyness we have for people to get together and go, it's okay now, we can shift, it's grand, I was pissed. But that's a cultural thing right there and alcohol was directly put in there. What, what do you think is it too hot a take out of me or the person who was asking the question to say that something like the Irish attitude towards drink could actually be as a result of a generational trauma or a response to it? I mean, it's not a, it's not a wildly loose connection. Uh, I think that I don't want to be the crack police here either, as not crack as in Syria. Well, I'm, I'm aware as well that you're an academic, so you have to be very careful with big sweeping no, statements. But I, I can say what I want. No. I have no accountability. I think that everybody should be allowed, there are people who don't drink at all, there are people, you know, there are people who drink a little bit, there are people, I think everybody should be allowed to do whatever they want in moderation as long as they're not hurting themselves or other people, yeah. so I don't want to be the crack police by saying, oh, we drink too much and it's terrible, but we do. We do, like, 
But you, le- you know what's considered actual Venus drinking? Four pints. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So f- four pints is like a, a really relaxing... Sunday lunch. Yeah. <laughs> but th- th- that's binge drinking. And the Spanish seem to get it. Yeah. The Germans get it. The Germans do their big Oktoberfest, but mm. they literally have one giant pint and then they kind of relax. We don't have that. Our, our, like elements of what I do view it as healthy. I, I, I think one of the most healthy expressions of Irish culture is the Irish wake. I love a good funeral. But seriously, like we do celebrate death and we celebrate people's lives. Yeah. And like we're not allowed to do it anymore, but back in the days, and this is before... Um, what, what did they call it? Embamming. They used to get the corpse and dance around the house with it and shove whiskey down his throat. That was normal. I'm not saying bring it back. But like... Would you I, like to put that into your will? I, I, I want to be burnt into a crisp and all my friends have to smoke me in a giant. <laughs> but... Like, that, that's one of the, the good things, I think, about Irish culture is... Like, British people, when they come to Ireland and they see, like, the fact that we even have an open coffin, the Brits can't handle it. They very much sanitise their death. But I think our... Do you know what I love? Because ah. I'm from a rural area, is... What I, what I find very difficult is, you know, when you go to a funeral and they don't... So, where I'm from originally... They don't have a dead body. It's a fake funeral. <laughs> <laughs> no, where I'm from originally, we don't have professional undertakers. So, we have undertakers who are farmers or whatever. What? Yeah, so in How ru- does that work? In rural communities, you have the funeral home, but because the community is so small, it's not like, you know, there's three funerals a day. Like, like when I moved to Cork, I, uh, somebody I knew, their father died, and I went to the removal, which was in a large funeral home in the city. And we'll say, where I'm from, it would be the only funeral in the day, so you'd kind of rock up at whatever time you want. Yeah. So I rocked up anyway, went around and shook hands and came out, and I was like, I... I didn't know anyone there. I, I was an hour early. Because in cities, it's like in and out, whatever. Yeah. Whereas it, where I'm from, it's rude. So you have somebody who, you know, works during the day and then somebody dies and they go and they sort it out. But you don't have grave diggers. So, the f- so pe- family members um, and, communi- and members of the community go and dig the grave. And you send up a bottle of whiskey and some sandwiches and stuff like that. And Is this still going on? Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. This happens in rural communities in Ireland all of the time. And then when you put the coffin in and they're finished saying the prayers and then the local people shovel in the clay. And the sound, for me, the person has gone. There's almost an acceptance that they're gone when you hear the sound of the clay hitting the coffin yeah and I've been to funerals where they don't do that you know they put this fake grass over the top yeah fuck that and I'm like so if are you, it's kind of like standing around going what happens next it's almost like it hasn't finished and I find that really weird I think that we're really good at I agree with you I think we're really good at death I think yeah um and I think the wake is a part of it as well as well too if you look at it from terms of um like so what's this got to do with psychology? It's, it is, I, I'm going to bring it right back to psychology hey, right now, because I'll tell topic. you, when I was, when I was uh, learning and training in psychology, right, mm-hmm. they were talking about one very important thing that I learned was when an adult in front of you begins to cry, 
our natural instinct is to hand that person a tissue. But what I learned was that I'm not actually doing it to assist them. It's that their explosion of emotion frightens me. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to do is to go, please take this and stop crying because I can't handle this. <laughs> I'm not trying to help them. That grass, that plastic grass is the tissue. It does the same thing. It's when you put plastic grass over the coffin and you don't allow the clay and the earth and the worms that are going to eat the mm. body, you deny the actual reality of finality and death. Ah, that's it. it it's this, this, there is no coming back when that clay hits that timber. Yeah. And it's the and noise it's honest. Of it. It's, it's like honest. Yeah. Everything's, there are going to be worms and it's grand because <laughs> it happens to everyone. Do you know who are the best at it though? The fucking Tibetans, man. They get dead bodies, fuck them up onto a mountain, and a lot, they cut up the body, and a lot of vultures eat it and fly off and drop the bones all over the valley because they've no soil. And then the young Buddhist monks have to go into all the rotten flesh and the bones, and they have to meditate there for seven hours so that they can confront death. No, I'll take And the they do grass. it in loud as well. I'll have the plastic grass. That's a giraffe. <laughs> no, I'm not. That used to be a tradition as well. In, in, there was a church in France and they were Catholic nuns and they, it, this is, they had these big concrete, they look like toilets. So it's this big concrete throne with a hole in the center and the dead nuns were placed on this to decompose. The hole was for the bodily fluids to like actually just decompose down. And the young nuns had to sit there all day and just do holy rosaries with tons of these rotting nuns around them. But the, which, it's a bit extreme. <laughs> it is very extreme, but what it essentially is, it's the same as the Buddhist thing. It's part of the experience of being alive sometimes is consistently distracting ourselves from the fact that our lives are going to end at one mm -hmm. point. And we don't like thinking about it. And we don't like thinking about everything you love and hold dear is going to die. Mm -hmm. That is reality. We can die tomorrow. We don't like to, why would you want to think about that? I'd rather listen to Slipknot. <laughs> but... There is a thing within spirituality, within Buddhism and within early Christianity where if you want to achieve communion with God, we'll say, you must go, I am a finite human being, I'm going to die, I accept it and I know it and only by achieving that can I be a spiritual being to help other people. So that's what they were doing. They had a lot of free time in their hands. If Instagram was around, that wouldn't happen. So tell me this, what do you think about people who are atheists then? Do you think that they find it easier or more difficult to deal with death? It depends on the type of, like, I would consider myself an atheist. Um, I'd be more, what's the one that isn't an atheist? Agnostic. Agnostic, yeah. I consider the position of atheism to be a bit, little bit arrogant, you know? Oh, it's, I'm an atheist. Oh, are you? Straight up, there's Straight definitely up. nothing. <laughs> I, I can't go for the absolute definitely nothing because it's too mad. I just go, whatever it is, I don't know what it is. So I don't want to take a full position, but... No, there's definitely I, no, nothing. I get my meaningless. <laughs> I... I I get my meaning from the present moment. Yeah. That's what I try and do. I say, I say, first off, there's no such thing as heaven or hell. What I say is that if I can choose to live in hell, I choose to live in hell by allowing anxiety to conquer my life, mm. by allowing myself to get so anxious over a long period of time that I let my depression creep in. That is me making choices around my behavior that will allow me to live in hell. By fighting that and making other choices, like CBT choices, I now get to live in heaven because I'm happy all the time because I keep an eye on my mental health. So there's my heaven and hell. I can only live in heaven if I 
try to do everything as much as possible in the here and now. So I don't live in the past worrying too much, you know, sullying my present moment by worrying about something I said to someone last week. And I don't sully my present moment by worrying about what might happen next week because I've no control over it. So I just try and go, what's going on right now? So would you recommend mindfulness then for mental health interventions? I would definitely recommend mindfulness, but one thing, now you'd probably know more about this than I would, but I did a guided meditation on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Mm And I meditate a lot. I fucking love it. It's very helpful for me. But I heard that meditation can be risky for people who have body trauma. If someone has, I don't know, a car crash and they hurt their leg and they forgot about the anxiety of it and then all of a sudden they meditate and check into their body and they start feeling that pain and it brings up the emotions. Yeah, you you have to be very careful with it. it, Yeah, do you know anything about that? Because that's just something I heard. What's the deal with that? There are some people... So, like... There are some people who just cannot do mindfulness because it's just too, it's too traumatic for them. So you have to, with every single intervention that you do, you have to, CBT doesn't work for everybody. No. Um, you know, so mindfulness is very good if you can master it. It's, it's cheap. It's, you can do it yourself. There's no big complicated language. I do it a lot. And I had, I hated, I, I hated the idea of mindfulness. And I had to do it. I was forced to do a training course on mindfulness one. And I was that like, doesn't sound very mindful. It was, <laughs> I know. we're going to force you to do mindfulness. Yeah, because it was recommended as best practice for a particular thing that I was doing. And I didn't want to do it. And I was like, I'm, am I actually going to pay somebody to tell me to breathe in my nose and out my mouth? And that's what I actually did when I was born automatically for free. Yeah. And I just couldn't get my head around it. So the first day that I was there, I brought my diary and I was doing my Tesco shopping list. So when your man was saying, you know, do the breathing and all that, I was walking through the aisles of Tesco and Wilton. So you were doing Tesco is a grocery store, <laughs> and I was walking through the. You were aisles. doing mindful Tesco. I well, Cheney Mac. That's yeah. You were yeah. I was because I right. try and be mindful when I'm washing the dishes. I, I try and be mindful when I'm eating my food, when I'm smoking my vape. No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't mindful because I was not being present in the moment, which was in oh, the mindfulness class. Okay, yeah. In the mindfulness class, I was imagining myself walking through the aisles in Tesco. Oh shit! Okay. Yeah. No, I was in the mindfulness class. So you were going, certainly not present in no, Tesco. No, I was like, so when you go or, down, or in, yeah, in mindfulness. So class. yeah, so there's the bread aisle first. Oh, those nice sun-blessed pancakes. The ones with the, you know, the sometimes it's eight with two free. They're lovely with butter. I'll definitely get some of them. Um, so I went the whole way around the thing. And then we had to do homework, mindfulness homework. And I was allergic, as they say in Cork. And do you know what? It worked. Okay. And, I, and then I started reading the neuroscience behind it. And there's a huge amount of neuroscientific research now behind mindfulness. And I know myself that when I do mindfulness, it has a huge impact on my... You know, when, when I notice... When you wait, do you mean mindfulness now as in like... Oh, I do, med- I do body scans and all that kind of stuff. So, but do you mean meditation or simply... Like, I, I will... A, a huge thing for me with mindfulness is... Like I said, when I used to have anxiety, somewhere like Dunn's stores, or not just Dunn's, maybe Tesco, these would have been massively triggering places for me. Mm. I used to have an intense irrational fear of... I would do something in this place that would draw a lot of attention to me. I was okay. afraid that I would get sick or go mad or start screaming or putting things off, I'd go, fuck it, what if I went up to the, uh, the washing powder aisle and just started taking things off the, uh, and, and everyone would stare at me. And I used to kind of go, fuck it, how do I know whether I have control over that? Oh shit, I think I want to do it. And now I'd have this mad panic attack. So I would just stay away from supermarkets altogether and it developed into agoraphobia. So now because of that, because that's a former trigger, when I'm in Dunn's stores now, I take out my headphones and I completely and utterly mindfully 
I will walk down the bread aisle. I will touch bread. I will smell it. I'll go down into the aisle with the, the washing powder and I'll smell the different washing powders and I'll be incredibly aware of literally everything. The touches. How many times have you been arrested? <laughs> no, I For smelling. I don't mean I'm straight up to the fucking daz with my face in there. Like, <laughs> I just mean I, I'm, I'm noticing. I'm, I'm really, Look at your really. Man in the aisle with the white powder. <laughs> intensely noticing what's going on. But then what I try and do as well is when I behave like that in, a, in, a, in, in Dunn's, when I go up to the cash register then, I'm so nice and sound to the person who's, who I'm, who, who's packing my stuff. Mm. And I'm not even aware that I'm doing it. It's because I'm, had I gone in there anxious, I won't even recognize that person's presence. Mm. I won't, I, and they will end up feeling like shit because here's just another prick that comes, comes in and thinks I'm invisible. Mm. But instead what I've done is I've smiled at them, I've been sound, I wasn't intruding and going, what are you doing? And I just said, have a lovely day and walked out. So my mindfulness then has allowed me to improve my community as such. I, I notice where I use it a lot is actually in parenting because you know if you work full time and you're tired and you come home in the evening time and you're just like, oh my God, I can't wait for them to go to bed. I don't because I've no children. Oh, I can no do what children. I want. You can have mine anytime you want. Try it out. Um, so you come home and you're exhausted and you think, I just want them to go to bed because I'm so exhausted. And then they love you and they want to spend a bit of time with you. And they might want to do Baba Black Sheep and you're like, I just can't, like, I just can't do it. I can't do Baba Black Sheep because I have to peel the spuds and put on a load of washing and I didn't send those three emails and I have 17 missed calls. And the poor old crazy said they're hanging off both legs and they're whinging and all they want is for you just to be present. Yeah. And the minute you do a bit of mindfulness and you just go, the watching will have to wait and the emails will have to wait and the return phone. If you can just be present for 15 minutes, they stop whinging and they go away and they... <laughs> I was expecting you have this big compassionate realization about what's important. Oh, you uh, wait. When did you parent and you love? Oh my friends? god! They go away and they play. Are you nice. for real? Yeah, they go away. So does and that they mean that they're with but, each but other? Is it possible too that when you come in worried and you're giving off a home of anxiety, that their way of coping mom is, with it is mom is demented. Let's mirror mom's behavior. Oh, of course. But dogs do the same thing. Yes. A dog will start yapping if you're... Yeah. Fucking and children, hell. So if you become mindful, all, and just honestly, 15, 20 minutes, and then they go away. <laughs> but they're, they're essentially... The, but Love you, darling. Bye-bye. But mm -hmm. do, do you think that... Go outside and play. When you come in demented and stressed, that their coping mechanism is, is Baba Black Sheep or just attention or love or something? No, Baba Black Sheep is because they want to, you know... They want to hear the song? Yeah. Okay. Um, and they want you to do it. Uh, and then if you're really stressed, you go, I'll do it in a minute, love, I'll do it in a minute, I just have to peel the potatoes. I was going to say spuds, potatoes. Um, you see, you've just drawn so much attention to that now. Um, so, yeah, and they just, they just really want your attention. And, and it's very hard in the world that we live in to, to give your attention because there's so many distractions. Um, and, and, and by being, and say, take a deep breath and ground yourself and notice your feet in the floor and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then you say, I'm okay, everything is okay in this moment and I can do Baba Black Sheep and enjoy it. And how often in your day do you ground yourself like that? Just do like a little body scan? More than I, sh not as much as I should. I do, I do it a lot at night time. I listen to a body scan that's eight minutes long. Yeah. And uh, in bed. Uh, I have never been awake for the end of that. Yeah, I yeah, wake yeah. up at 8 o'clock in the morning with the earphones wrapped around my head and the phone is over there and there's a child here and one down there and dogs and all sorts. And uh, I, will, I won't have, I, I will fall, from the minute I put my head in the pillow, 
I will be asleep before the eight minutes is up yeah. from that body scan. I think it's amazing. Yeah. Did you hear the, the little body scan mindfulness thing I did, yeah? And it didn't bother you that was in a Limerick accent, no? Um, I'm going to use that in one of my classes. Do for the crack. I will for the crack. Um, I'm going to ask some of the fucking questions I was actually I know, asked. Yeah. I haven't asked fucking one of them. <laughs> um, You're very distractible. My question is, what do politicians and policymakers need to do to A, prevent childhood trauma from happening in the first place and B, to better support unrecovered adult survivors so that they can feel safe and heal? Okay. E you're not always going to be able to prevent all adversity and a little bit we all experience adversity in our lives life is not always great and it's uh, that builds resilience bad things happen um you can't protect children we, we i think we're over protecting children from bad things now as well and that, that's not good for resilience have you heard of the concept of helicopter parenting e, there was something that happened in the 90s wasn't it <laughs> is, is something to do with bill clinton i don't know uh, yeah it's it's is, is it a theory that, um, I've heard it rolled out as one reason why there's a, a lot of anxiety today, that yeah. it was a generation of kids who grew up it, with just the news freaking out about others, oh, paedophiles everywhere, mind your children the whole yeah. time, and now everyone didn't get coping mechanisms. As well mechanisms. as that, parents, so we have smaller families and things like that as well. So, like if you but think, I think older parents are more cautious, cautious too. Yeah, so like I'm in my 40s, I'm totally risk averse. Um, and I've only got two children, so I can actually m watch them all the time. If I had 14 of them, sure, I wouldn't even know their names. Um, okay, yeah, and yeah. That, that's, not, that's, not all, that's not always a bad thing. So, like, <laughs> so what I mean, this, so there's this concept of um, an element of healthy neglect. So I'm trying to do this with my children. Um, but they don't, I'm actually totally, serve, I'm totally monitoring them, but they don't know. So they think they're going to the shop on their own and that kind of stuff, but they're not. I'm like hiding You've in the bushes. You've drawn behind them, no, yeah. No, I'm in the bushes. Um, and they're like, they think they're great and they're all super, but when we were that age, like you left the house in the morning and you didn't come back until six o'clock in the Oh, evening. yeah, yeah. Nobody, I used to get lost. I used to hang around with a dog and get lost. Did you ever hitch, did you ever hitchhike? What? Me, my, myself and my sister used to hitchhike into Limerick. Hitch I didn't go that far now. I used to jump on the back of vans and end up at different parts of town, like, but like... Like, imagine if you're 14... I, no, do you know what? Actually, this, yeah, that's, that's... I used to put my hand out and hitch, but no one wanted to collect me, so probably because you were girls. Yeah, yeah. So we used to hitchhike to Limerick from East Clare and... No one does that anymore. I mean, no. when I was, people used to have their thumbs out on the road, like... Yeah, I... Yeah, and... And, and, and you were kids, were you? Teenagers. And no one told you that that's, that's wrong for two well, girls. Well, yeah, but you did it anyway. Okay, yeah. But there was no mobile phones or anything like that. And uh, so nobody knew where you were. So they'd say, oh, where, we, no, we'd be inside in Pennies in Limerick. And uh, my mother would say, where were you? We were down in the Protestant graveyard uh, <laughs> looking at the headstones because we were interested in, you know, the family names. <laughs> mother. Um, we weren't, we were in pennies, in Limerick. <laughs> um, but sure, like, no, but you sure how, like, she wasn't... That would nearly make the news today. Oh, yeah. If kids ended up successfully hitching into Limerick, it would get on the news. Do you, do you know two young fellas from Dublin went to America? Oh, that, didn't someone make a story out of that? How did yeah. they manage that? So they got on a flight and they went to America. Didn't they? Am I wrong? Right? Was it America? Yeah. Did they get two flights? Even? Were they, like, proper children? Ten. Like? ten. 
I think they were 10 and 11, yeah. I know a, a, a dog ended up in Dublin there three weeks ago. <laughs> from Maynooth. No, I, 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 I remember, yeah, the dog from Kildare ended up in fucking Dublin and he was all over the TV. I, uh, I, so we used to hitchhike when we were that age. I remember when my nephew was, I don't know, in TY transition year, whatever year, I don't know, 15 or 16, and there was a thing on in UCC and he wanted to come down and my sister was going to christen or something and she couldn't drive and I said, sure, he could get the bus. Well, the panic. And uh, now my, my nephew, he's, 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 he's a bit, Big man now, and at the time he was still the big tall fella, and he had a beard and everything, even when he was 16. And I said to him about getting on the bus, and he said, um, "But like, there could be weirdos." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, "You are the weirdo on the bus." <laughs> and then I, I can't remember if it was my mother or my sister said to me, "What about paedophiles?" And I was like, "I've got news here." He's like, "Wait, he's he's like gone beyond. He's like, oh, he's not in the age range, you know." And I was looking, I was going like, we were hitching. We were like, we were hitchhiking when we were that age. And, and, and we don't allow our children to get the bus. We don't allow them to go to the shop on their own. We, we, we constantly know where they are all the time. And the thing is with that, right, is, and, and here's where I would look at it, is that genuinely for the safety of the child or so that the parent doesn't have to feel anxiety? It's, it's, it's our anxiety. Yeah. Because we... We respond now to 1% and 2% risk. Um, you know, the risk of a child being abducted by a stranger in Ireland is extremely small in mm -hmm. comparison to other countries. Um, it, it's horrendous, absolutely horrendous when it happens. But what we're doing is we're parenting based on a, a probably less than 1% risk. And what that does is it tells the children, you tell, you tell children by your behavior that the world that they live in is dangerous, and it's not. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, and we, we totally de-skill them. So in order to build resilience, you, make, you have to make decisions, and you have to take risks, and sometimes you have to make mistakes. Um, what do we do now when our children come home from school and they say, I was in school today, and, and blind, blind by call me four eyes? What do we do now? We ring the school. Mm -hmm. What did we do then? Go in and hit him a slap. Yeah. Yeah. Because you had to problem solve. Problem or, solving. Or, like, if your parents weren't like that, it was sticks and stones. Yeah. Sticks and stones will break your bones, but birds will never hurt you. Yeah. So, we have to let children problems. There's a really good article in the uh, Huffington Post called Simplifying Childhood. And it talks about the, that, about you know, children not having opportunities to be bored as well. Being yeah. bored is very, very Bo good like for you. Boredom, literally, I remember being bored when I was younger, but the second the internet was invented, the feeling of boredom left my body. I've forgotten what boredom feels like. Yeah. How the fuck are you supposed to be bored? Like, I remember being seven, eight years of age and I literally had nothing to do for it's half an hour. It's boring. <laughs> but you just, you take out your phone and you're talking to someone on Instagram. You can't be bored. It's, it doesn't exist. Yeah. So in our and house, a bit of boredom is nice. In our house, our poor children are totally deprived, so they've no access. And are they iPads the whole time? They've no access to any. They're okay. not allowed to use any electronic devices. Uh, the television is not switched on on weekdays. It's only switched on on a Saturday night at half And are you six. doing that based on research that you've seen? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the kids come in and they go, I'm bored. I'm delighted because there's a load of washing in there that needs to be hung out. The dishwasher hasn't been emptied. And there's a hoover down there with your name on it, love. They're gone, and out the back, climbing a tree. Oh, okay, okay. They're no longer bored when there's housework. 
Um, I when did... you're bored, what you have to do is you have to be creative. Yeah. And if, you, if you're there and you're bored, you'll say, oh, Jesus, what do I do now? Sure, look, will I clean the skirting boards or I'll paint that wall? Wouldn't that wall be nice blue? But I if used you're to a draw. Child, That's yeah, my, my whole shop, artistic thing. Cut up bits of paper and pretend it's money. Yeah. And then fight. Myself and my sister, who's here, we used to box the head off each other. <laughs> would you, kids, can, are kids allowed to box the head off each other anymore? No, not anymore. No. The guards will be called. Um, I, I heard an instant... She's here. Will I tell you what? She spat at me once when, I, when, she was about, <laughs> when she was about seven. Isn't that terrible? Who does that? I, like? I, heard, um, <laughs> I heard a theory that the reason this helicopter... and, and We'll say the thing that caused the culture of helicopter parenting was when 24-hour news became a thing. Mm. The news used to just be a thing that happened in, like the Angeles, you know, morning and lunch and the evening. But as soon as cable television in America had 24-hour news, mm. it also led to these huge, massive panic stories about someone's missing, a kid is missing. Yeah. Well, fucking hell, we have to do 24 hours of news, let's give it yeah. six hours. And from this fed the fear of the world is an incredibly dangerous place. We're living in the least violent time in human history. Yeah, yeah. The least violent time in human history. And we're probably statistically, the most, yeah. Statistically, and we're probably the most frightened. I remember when I had my second child and she was only a few weeks old and I was sitting on the couch and, uh, ooh, lovely little baby, mm, big fat chubby cheeks. And I, I turned on the television and you know what came on? Uh, the murder of the British soldier on the street. Fuck, yeah. And I was lying there with this beautiful little child and I started crying. Yeah, I thought, yeah, yeah. what have I done? I've brought you into a really terrible world. And I was so upset all day about the fact that I brought this perfect, beautiful little creature into a world that was so horrific. And the reality was, was what happened was horrific. Yeah. But it didn't happen to me. Yeah. It wasn't happening to her. But I was being impacted, emotionally and impacted you by something. the trauma. That's I, the vicarious trauma. I was trauma, being just... emotionally impacted by something that I could do nothing about. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I, there's no t none of that TV Wi-Fi stuff going on in our house. And the kids, TV, I'm going... TV Wi-Fi stuff? I'm going moving in with Connor because Connor's got an iPad. <laughs> okay, love, I'll miss you, darling. I love you loads. Um... I'm going to open the floor up to some questions for the end of it. Can we bring up the house lights, but in a very gentle fashion, please? I don't want to alarm anybody. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Bet you didn't know there was that many. I did not. How are do you I getting on, Cork? Do I have to look? <laughs> um, who would like to ask a question? I'm going to do this in such a way that I'm sound to the person who has the microphone. Is it correct that the microphone is over here? So cons Hiya. Is there also a Who's got, oh shit, up here. Yeah, look. Oh, boys, look, I was forgetting about Ollie. you see waving up there with a microphone. So sorry, lads. And are they the more expensive seats? You have to look after them. Okay, <laughs> this lady here. Hiya. How are um, you? I just actually have a question for you there. Um, you were talking about um, like transgenerational and blah, blah, you were saying this as well. Is that a Scottish accent? No, I'm from Canada and I kind of have a Cork accent now. That oh I my God, wow. So I'm all over the place. You I'm sound like a fucking Viking. <laughs> <laughs> Go um, on. But I was just wondering, uh, in your in your professional opinion and blind boy for you as well, uh, do you see that like kind of, you know, uh, relationships, you know, toxic relationships that could be happening, 
you know, not, not happening to you, but to your parents, to your grandparents, could that be affecting your present-day relationships as well? Ooh. Ooh, didn't you do something on uh, systemic family therapy? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you should answer this one. Um, well, I mean, look, it's, it's very simple. If you grow up in a house and you will say your two parents should really be divorced, but they're still together, so therefore their way of expressing companionship is through passive aggression or not talking, or even worse, if there's, you know, a toxicity and a violence involved, that from a very young age is you learning how you should relate to another person. So if you didn't experience love from your parents, you as an adult then trying to find love in another person, you might not know what it looks like, or if you believe that your parents fighting all the time is how it should be done, when someone actually does come towards you with genuine love, you don't know what it looks like, and you go, that's weird, no thanks. And then you're like, why am I always doing that? That person was sound. I think I'll have this prick instead. Do you know? But that sounds like a very pessimistic thing. The beauty, and I always say it, the beauty of psychology and the beauty of being an adult, once you discover these things about yourself and you become an adult, you can go, fucking class, I can rewrite my script and I can change that, I can identify it and I can become a new fucking person. Do you get me? Mm. So it's not as deterministic and as doom and gloom as that. How does that sound? Because you're the professional psychologist. I would give that an A+. Ah, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> um, I am conscious that it is 11 o'clock. All right, one more, you poor bastard. So <laughs> I met you outside and I smoked a fag, didn't I? <laughs> I smoked a fag with him earlier. Here, send, send this, this gent down, the, the man in the orange jumper. Sounds like a novel. <laughs> Hold on, the mic's behind you, cousin. <laughs> kind of a two-pair, though, right? But, uh, <laughs> I love this right? already. Hey. No, but bear with me. Right, so... Uh, That's a man with mic technique. Yeah. I'd like you to know your personal opinion, first of all, on uh, marijuana, I suppose yeah. I'm going to say. And then, as, um, as a psychologist's point of view from mental health, because I suffer through my own mental health issues myself, but I always find that smoking weed helps me be a better me. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I'd just like to know your own personal perspective and then as a psychologist, just because I've known if you've done both psychology, so um, just on the both sides, you know. All right, from me personally, uh, any substance, it has to do with your own personal relationship with it. So for me personally, I'll have the odd bit of Baldy. I have a good relationship with Baldy. I'll smoke at the odd time when I feel like it. I will not use it to medicate myself. I won't use it to try and feel better. I'll see, I, I use it as a reward. If I do a bunch of hard work, I'll go, small bit of baldy there on a Friday, and I'll rediscover the early albums of Nirvana. <laughs> so that's my relationship with it. Um, Nirvana's great when you're stoned. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> but then, he, here's the thing. Now, I don't know, I could be wrong with this shit, right? But they did some studies into we say the way that weed can affect the brain, right? Weed that has excessively high levels of THC, there's two chemicals, CBD and THC. The excessive... That's another question I wanted to ask you as well, actually, man. Go on, yeah. You... Sorry, sorry, guys. I know you vape as well, and I start to vape myself, right? Yeah. But I still smoke fags, but I'm, I'm uh, 
uh, vape in the CBD. Yes. And that was another thing I wanted to ask you. But well, you're not getting a buzz off it though. Nah, THC is all for me, boss. There I mean, you go. <laughs> there you go. So THC is the fun one. But here's the thing though, lads, right? We, if you're in California, we'll say where it's perfectly legal, okay? You can walk into a shop like it's a fucking cheese counter below on the English market and you can choose, today I want to have 50% THC, 50% CBD. The shit that we are smoking on the streets that you're buying after off a dealer, you don't know what it is, you don't have choice. The dealer is going, oh, I've got blue cheese. It could be fucking anything. These things have incredibly high THC and they have done studies that excessive use of this can be triggering to people who already have a potential towards psychosis, right? Think of it this way. If drink was illegal, lads, if alcohol was illegal, what would we be drinking? Pochine that's made in people's bathrooms and we wouldn't know what's in it and people would be going blind and people would be dropping dead. Instead, at least, we can go to a shop and buy a can of beer that's 5% and know what you're getting. So the law has created a situation where we are smoking things that are potentially unsafe as opposed to having the choice to go, today I want to have a mix of CBD and THC because I know this might protect me. The other thing with hash being illegal, and I mentioned this before on a podcast, the main hash growing gangs in Ireland are triad gangs. They're, they're fueling human trafficking. They're bringing in uh, Vietnamese people, Filipino people who just want to get to the West. They're paying nothing, bringing them over in containers. They're ending up in, like, in Limerick, and they're in grow houses as slaves, growing fucking weed. The guards come in, they arrest them. They're sent to jail for 10 years, and all they are is a migrant who wanted to get to another country who thought they were going to work in a kitchen. That exists when we buy cannabis on the streets. So now cannabis, this essentially healthy drug, is unethical. You're supporting slavery. So those are other reasons, yeah. I think, but... Regarding, look, it's all about your relationship with the fucking drug. If you smoke weed and it makes you really paranoid all the time and it makes you unhappy and you worry about how much you smoke it and you feel you can't enjoy yourself if you don't, then you have an unhealthy relationship with that substance and you need to step away from it and look at the issues. But if you can recreationally enjoy it and be grand and you're fine, then you don't have an issue with that substance. How, how would you feel about yeah, that? Yeah, I, I couldn't disagree with it. I, I think in, in the 1970s, in terms of European countries, including Ireland, about 10% of uh, the weed that you could buy would be the kind of high strength, uh, whereas it, now it, it's like something like 95%. Like, we, I so used to smoke smelly, ha smelly sock hash, it was called in Limerick. Brown stuff, and it would barely get you squidgy high. Squidgy black. Squidgy fucking, yeah, but squidgy black is the good stuff. But I didn't... There was... Everyone was smoking weed when I, was, when I was a teenager, but you weren't getting people developing weed psychosis because they were all smoking yeah. this really shit hash. So, yeah, so you're right. So there's THC and there's CBD, and T THC is what gets you high, and, and yeah. CBD then wraps itself around your myelin sheets, which is a thing in your brain, and it protects you from getting too high, uh, and, yeah. and then it protects you from, from, from uh, getting drug-induced psychosis. But the problem with the stuff that you are buying is it, it, it has... Uh, the levels of THC are too high and the levels of CBD are too low. So you are putting yourself at risk. Um, um, there are people who are more vulnerable. Uh, if you have chronic mental health issues and you have stuff going on in your life um, and you're using drugs to manage that, uh, it, w it might not give you what you need. Um, but you can say that, like there are people who exercise too much. I like, oh, I yeah, never, yeah, why yeah, didn't yeah. I get that one? 
<laughs> the exercising one, you know, I yeah. sit at home and drink a beer and eat chocolate. But um, so you can have unhealthy relationships with lots of different things. Video games. Yeah. Jesus, I've got friends whose lives are fucking ruined from video games. They're, they can't enjoy it. They don't want to go outside. They just want to, they, all they care about the video game. Social media. I got a blister on my thumb when I was in college from playing Crash Bandicoot one night. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Until but four o'clock in the morning. But that by itself, like, that's very low level, but that Crash is... Crash Bandicoot is low level. Oh, no, four o'clock. But it's troubling behaviour. Like you like just in Crash you're Bandicoot. You're giving yourself an injury because you're doing this thing yeah, and you can't stop. That's, so that's a problem. That's not great, yeah. That's not... So if you've injured yourself, you've injured somebody else, if you haven't got enough money because you're spending it in too much... Yeah. So, like, if, if, a, if on a Friday night... Like, I, I love cheese, and one of my yeah. treats is, is, is uh, the English market is to go and buy cheese. So you, you, ha you eat loads of cheese and box the head off someone. <laughs> yeah, so I eat loads of cheese. So that would might be, I might reward myself to cheese uh, yeah. from uh, the English market on a Friday. And if you want to, you know, treat yourself to, to having a spliff or whatever on a Friday, and somebody else wants to have a beer, and somebody wants to go for a jog, if you attend to all of your responsibilities yeah. and you go to bed at night feeling okay with yourself, then I'm cool with that. Yeah. And Can I go serious? Someone didn't take the microphone away from me, Scone. Can I ask one more question? Go on, you can, yeah. Fuck it, right? How come, how come uh, just from what you're saying there, right? Like, and just, right, I felt like coming home from work and having, like, right, me dad. Fuck it, he's not here, right? So, if my dad comes home from work, right, and has 20 cans of Budweiser yeah, sitting yeah. down watching YouTube with me, right? Yeah. But if I come home from work and have two spliffs, and then I'm too fucked to even watch telly, so I go out to bed. Yeah. Like, uh, how is that so fucking different, like, you it's, know? It's not different, I, it's I, the I, relationship, it's, though. Like, put it this way. I, I will go and have, I, I'll have eight cans on a Friday. What I mean, sorry, is like, earlier. how is like the alcohol so bad and then... Well, like, how, can the look, how can a fella have 12 cans rather than a fella have like a spliff and a half and go to bed and go to sleep because he's too fucked, like, do you know what I mean? Alcohol, like drinking, first of all, drinking 20 cans in one night is going to fuck your liver up. That's not great. <laughs> but uh, again, it's, it, it's not, not just, if you drink cans and then after you drink cans, you feel like starting a fight with someone or you You're depressed. Are depressed, yeah. or you text a lot of shit to, to your ex-girlfriend and you regret it in the morning. Those are all things too that you go, fuck it, maybe this isn't for me. I mean, I, I, for me, if I have a spliff and a few cans, all I want to do is listen to music and have a good time. So therefore, Same. I have a good relationship with it, yeah. But I know, <laughs> I, I have friends, we go out with them, they get five or six pints and all of a sudden they're starting a fight and now I'm involved in it because my friend has started a fight. So we have to talk to him and say, you need to have a look at your relationship with fucking alcohol because I'm too old to be getting into fucking fights because of you. <laughs> but seriously, you know what I mean? That's, that's an alcohol issue there, you know? We'll have to wrap it up here, lads, right? Because it's nearly 11 o'clock. Oh, it's fucking after 11, Jesus. All right. <laughs> Dr. Sharon Lambert, thank you so much. Thank you to Cork. I've been blind by best of luck, Yart. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 